That's right. And it's the, oh my gosh, it's been a long time since we could really bet, but there's light at the end of the tunnel, so I feel a little bit better edition of the Dream Preview. Steve Fezzik in studio. He is ready to go. We got some interesting topics. Uh, NBA, who, what teams are going to have the advantages? And I think there's some clear answers that's going to be actionable. And the odds are up, right? How many, most books have the NBA up? Yeah. And it'll be interesting because you've got in your pocket, Fez, Milwaukee. Three to one. And the question is, and I think this is going to be something I want to dig into, what is the directional advantage or disadvantage from what we thought was going to happen pre-pandemic to now? And how have the odds moved? Because in theory, nothing else has changed. So it should just be the pandemic effect. But I don't think it is. Meaning if you look at the odds, what they were March 10th, what the odds are now, the difference should be that pandemic effect. Wouldn't that mean that the Lakers have gone down a lot? Gone down a little bit. No, I think more than a little. But you're saying they actually the actual odds have gone down a little bit. And I'm saying it should probably be more. Yeah. And. You know, I think the Clippers should have gone up significantly. I mean, the whole theory, and we'll get to that, but I mean, I think that the finally having the numbers that are bettable and it feels tangible feels even more exciting. And let's be honest, Steve, you've been, as the time has passed, you've been struggling with not just not betting every day, but the idea that there was no, like, when were you going to be able to start? And maybe we should start there. The idea that the NBA is now set effectively for what, July 31st? Yes. How does that, in your mind, part of me would think, well, feels like they're taking their good sweet time. It doesn't feel like they're rushing. We know baseball isn't rushing to their, I think, I think it's contemptible how little they seem to care. But now that there is the NBA and it's tangible, is that meaningful to you? Is it, Or are you still like, man, they should have been playing by July 10th. How do you feel about no, it? No, it's very meaningful. I got to tell you, I am exhaling. I am much more relaxed because the bottom line is we just didn't know how long all this was going to last. And the fact that we have concrete, we have a concrete starting date. You nailed it. July 31st for the NBA. And in the near future now, we have a return to normalcy. And frankly, yeah, it's unfortunate that I'm staring at two more months where I'm not going to make money betting on the major team sports. But the fact... Well, it's, I think it's important to always bring it back to what's important to you, which is you. <laughs> I mean, so good job. Continue. In fact, this would be... Fair enough. This would be a good time. Listen, remember what's important, guys. He's important. So this... <laughs> me. Me. So this is what I... T- <laughs> Am I wrong? No. Am I wrong? But Okay, then. <laughs> hey, you're saying, listen, it's just the way it is. You are mad at baseball. Let's just maybe just get to that right now. Oh, I'm furious at baseball. I'm furious at – just stop me when I've gone too far here, RJ. But both All right, sides, so next topic. Oh, okay. 
the billionaire owners, the millionaire players, disingenuous is how I would describe these labor negotiations. And they're not even negotiations. They're just throwing out offers, making them public. And basically the entire way, and you've described this well, the players are going to get paid the same per game. That was the agreement back in March. And then what happened? Uh, we're not going to have fans in the stands. We're not going to have the gate. We're not going to have the concessions. So the owners are going to lose every game that gets played that they're playing the, paying the players their full salaries for that game. So financially, because we're talking wins and losses of games, but fin- the estimate from the owners, and we can assume this is something that the owners are uh, leaning things their way. But even if we ask cut in half or whatever, 640000 a game lost per game on average. So they want to keep the playoffs and play as few games as possible. Makes sense. If, you're lo- if every time you do something, you lose money on it, it's not a very good business. Yes. If you have longer-term concerns and figuring we'd rather lose this amount now than the ramifications of not having a season— then give the owners credit for being at least that forward thinking. It feels like if they met in the middle or even gave it where two-thirds of the expense or the loss went to the owners, but the players took some, we could one, we could be playing. To me, what's more egregious or what's more impactful to the negative, detrimental, is the idea that there's going to be all this July time. A, a month from now, we should have games. The fact that we won't, we'll still be weeks away from the NBA and baseball probably won't be going, that's the problem. I don't care if baseball is playing in October or September. Exactly. But right now, what are we yeah. watching? NASCAR. So we're, lo- we're losing games, but we're losing days on the calendar. Yeah, days on the calendar that we had nothing else to watch. So baseball had a golden opportunity. And, and you don't care about watching. No. Just be honest. No, but... You're saying you don't have a chance to somehow screw some bookie over that in that game. Well, absent betting live and finding a way to win, then I'll watch. But yes, yeah, but well, it's not about watching. Y- yes, not about the enjoyment. It wasn't like when I was a little boy growing up listening to the Big Red Machine on WLW seven twenty AM. Um, things have changed. Yes, I'm no longer a fan. But when you look at the big picture here, RJ, I mean, it's clear. What do the fans want? That's what no one is addressing here. The fans want to see baseball return as quickly as possible. Start up the season in July, play August, play September. That's what? Oh, about 80 games, potentially. And so what have we gotten from the owners? We've gotten proposals for 48 games back This is at the end of June. I'm sorry, end of May was their initial proposal. We got a proposal from the players. Hey, we'll play 114 games. We'll play until it snows. Both sides not seemingly to care what the fans want. And even most recently, again, where is the proposal? We'll start as soon as we can. It's probably going to be about one month to get started. So I got a question. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not looking for you to read from the headlines. or I'm asking you, what do you see as the story here? The story is that... Both sides have not put out one proposal that has compromised, in my opinion, any any amount at all. They've, they've drawn— Well, the very act of the owners wanting to have any season if the net of the— Now, I'm not sure if the season in net still loses money when you add the playoffs in. That's an interesting question. In fact, McKenzie, let's get some research on that 
I don't think you'll be able to find it now, but it might be worth a quick look. But it's worth a dig in. Are the loser, are the owners going to lose with a 48-game season that allows for the playoffs, and thus the net financial impact would be the, those 48 games plus the playoffs? Would that still be a loser based on their numbers? Because if so, um, we got to give the owners credit. They're saying we'll take a loss now in order to keep the value of MLB high or you know, don't allow it to drop. Right? Because net net, if you, if Subway has a Subway outlet or location that's not making money and it's owned and operated by the company, what are they going to do with it? They're going to shut it down, yes. right? Yes. Well, if, if baseball's losing 640, if the owners are losing 640K a game, why do they play them? It's about some future. Yeah, the future earnings and the goodwill and the extra fans yeah. they'll have, the, the, you know, going as a perpetuity or, or they going on. Or they won't lose, you know, the fans they don't lose, really. Prime yeah, more. I misspoke. <laughs> yeah, We're I, past the point that they're going to pick up a brand new fan base. They might, but it's not going to be because they play these games, right? Or it yeah. could have been, in theory, if they got going early when they had all the attention. Yeah, now that NBA is going to be playing before baseball. And we're not sure of that yet, are we? We're not, my, sure, my thought no, was, we're not sure. My thought was last week was a sign that when it went by, that July 4th wasn't doable. Yeah, it's pretty much 30 days. So when if they came to an agreement June 15th, we'd probably be starting July 15th. Okay. So we got like weeks and weeks before they, we know they're after the NBA. But the MLB has just come out saying, hey, if there's not a deal in place by next week. So the MLB, is that the, the owners? The owners, uh-huh. yeah. The, what the owners have said, if, hey, we don't have a deal in place by next week then we're going to a 48-game approximate schedule, the shortened schedule. That's smart because why keep, in a way, if you get that date, and we're, we're, and, and when would the start time be for that? They have not disclosed. Okay. Well, sooner would be better. Yeah. So in a weird way, that's interesting. Wherever that 48-day mark is, whereas, okay, we don't want to go, because my understanding is they don't want to go past October 31st. It's kind of their date. So even though they did go past that with, remember, Mr. November or whatever it was when I think Jeter, if I remember right. <laughs> but, you know, it had just gone into the first of November, I think. I, you know, it was a late season. But they're not going to go later than usual because the weather is such a big issue, I think, right? But if they're going to only do 48 games, I'd rather them start as soon as possible. Agreed. And, and end earlier because who cares what's happening? And, and at least when it comes to the – Lack of options right now, right? I don't care as much about October. I, we're going to have enough going on, hopefully, in October. So, Mackenzie, we got any idea on the net net financials if it's a 48 game season? Yeah, so according to Jeff Passan, the, the team, the league is willing to lose $460 million for the regular season, and the playoffs would be an $800 million gain. So, it would be positive in the net. If they well, play both the regular and post-seasons. So you're telling me the MFR owners would rather lose a season than only make $300 million. That's right. I mean, listen, we got we to gotta be... Let's just say this. The bookies are not alone. Cockroaches. Cockroaches, yeah. We've got some stuff from SOV. We're going to put at the pretty much the end of the pod. 
I thought it was pretty short, but it was very interesting. And Fez, I think we can both agree the owners, the players, doesn't feel like they have a lot of consideration for the fans. They feel very self-involved, and ultimately businesses like that are punished. And I think baseball is going to be punished even further for, for the disregard. And I know personally you're going to punish them with the blackness of your heart because you're not making any money. <laughs> So it's a double whammy, absolutely. And, you know, they're really going to get punished if there's no season. They're still going to get punished hard with a 48-50 to 50 game season. Uh, maybe in the short term. I'm not sure because, to me, the, the, the real yes-no is do you have a World Series or not? Because literally, 19, WW1, eh, we're not going to miss any World Series. World Series is fixed. Rothstein... Ah, we it's in the books, baby. It's in the books. WW two, Normandy, Hitler, no problem. Vietnam, no problem. JFK assassinated, no problem. All the way. Nine eleven, no problem. But in ninety four, hey, these billions, we're not splitting it up fair. Let's make sure we miss the World Series. You have a second one of those? Woomfa. Okay. Vegas, I call it home, 22 years now. What's your observations? We got three or four Fezvations, we'll call them, but not. Yeah, and this comes from my latest visit to Vegas, specifically Green Valley Ranch. Stop by today. Did you just say latest visit to Vegas? Uh, It almost sounded like the dude from the Lives of the Rich and Famous. Uh, Uh Yeah. Continue in a conversational I time. like the precautions that the casino is taking. I felt very safe. I walk into a door, boom. They're like, make sure you're socially distanced. Sit, stand here. Okay, now, sir, come through. Almost like the airlines, like checking through security. Took my temperature from afar, welcomed me in, walking around, and I'm looking around, and I'm seeing a lot of social distancing. Every other chair in the sports book. Uh, all the employees wearing masks, about half the patrons wearing masks. So, so Steve, if I was malicious to the audience, I would cancel this whole segment fast because the way you're announcing the beginning, like you're an announcer. You're not an announcer. So just tell us. Which, so you started the GVR on the way to the, to the studio today. Yes. And your observations. And let's start with, because we, you know, we talked about this beforehand, the amount of precautions the casinos are taking. Yeah, I felt very safe. I felt like the GVR had really thought out the way they're going to lay out the casino, that with the spacing, every other seat in the sports book has been removed and just walk so, so removed. Yes, removed. And just walking through, it felt like there was ample precautions in play to make it as safe as possible to gamble at the GVR. Okay, so one of them was you would have the temperature taken going in. So the theory is if you were, you know, some people are asymptomatic, but in general, if you got a fever, that's bad. 
And that's we're going to eliminate them, but it's not going to eliminate everyone with COVID-19. So continue. Right. And just the fact that I didn't see any areas where people were congregating together, even at the craps table, the players were all very much spread out. So I was encouraged by what I saw. We'd seen a lot of reports when Vegas first reopened. Hey, there's no social distancing going on. Well, I saw social distancing at the casino today. Now, I think the Wednesday afternoon crowd is going to be different than the Friday night crowd, right? Yes, that's a great point. And I think most people that are, uh, you know how there's day drinkers? I think there's day gamblers, and those types usually aren't, don't have a lot of friends. Yeah, and the slot players also tend to be more happy to be isolated. So when I'm looking around— Or the hardcore daytime slot player. Yeah, the hardcore day slot player. So it's not a surprise. It seemed like, oh, I saw a slot player here, and then it wasn't just one machine empty, but maybe three or four, and then the next player, they were all spaced well out. It's so fascinating to me that the way you—I would never say that in a thousand years, that I came in and I felt safe. It's almost like it's a line out of um, the Howard Hughes Scorsese movie. Like, did, did you ever get washed like in like virgin baby milk, and your mommy telling you that the like the world is dirty? Was there any of that? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you're think in, about it a second. <laughs> you're infected. I mean. <laughs> I felt safe. Would you say it that way? No. I don't think I've ever said I feel hmm. safe. Listen, you love, you have self-love. And, I mean, I've got to be honest. It's probably better. The question is, I think it would be best to be honest about yourself. But if you had to choose, I, I'm going to hate myself or I'm going to dislike myself more than I should. Or I'm going to love myself more than I should. It feels like the love myself more than I should is the better Air. Obviously, you agree. <laughs> yes. Now, do you think you love yourself more than you should? Or do you think just right? <laughs> I think I could use a little self, self-loathing. <laughs> Most people, maybe not, but uh, me. But like, hey, listen. Yeah. Luckily, you were safe. But you need to understand it is not a gamble. It is a calculated risk. And you got through it okay. At least so we think. All right. Mackenzie, I know you've been monitoring the social media and such. This weekend, do you feel like the weekend-type non-social distancing was prevalent, or was it just here or there and it got reported on? I feel like most people were not uh, administering social distancing nearly what would be recommended, especially recommended downtown. Recommended by whom? You know, the six feet apart, the kind of CDC guidelines that they change every day, by the way. Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting part, right? But from reports from people downtown, it seems like everyone's just having a fun. I mean, one thing is it's only 50% capacity max, so they count the people, and if there's too many, so that kind of helps. But not too concerned is, is, my, is my guess from most people I hear. Matt, am I hearing this right? Mackenzie and Fez are wheezing as they talk? You're not on. I'm not hearing you. Well, that you can't hear me wheeze, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I wonder why. I don't. They're they're <laughs> they're struggling. Hey, hey everybody! <laughs> I think they're lifting weights in the back. Yeah, I mean, or I mean, I don't know what Mackenzie's doing. I can only see the upper half, but all right. <laughs> I promise you, I'm sitting right ah, here. Thank you. Well, you could be in on it. Who knows? Nope, absolutely. <laughs> all right. We ended up having a long political conversation. Mackenzie, let's just say this. 40 per, 
I don't know the percentages. What I'll tell you is this. No one's going to agree with everything he said. <laughs> Nobody. And half of you will agree maybe with something he said. <laughs> so I think about half's going to disagree with everything. And <laughs> the rest are going to disagree with some. And no one agrees with it all. So if you're trying to get elected, you just do the opposite. <laughs> but we're throwing that to the end. Because some of you will want to listen, some won't. And now we actually, amazingly, had a whole other section that went to another pod. It is now 1027. Fez is fading. Like a, fading? He's having, he's having like a <laughs> sundowning even before in his 50s. I don't think you're supposed to sundown in your 50s, Fez. What's sundowning? Oh, that's, you know, it, it, maybe, yeah, it's, it's the idea that some people who are sharp in the daytime, that when they get fatigued, you start to see like signs of them getting older because in their weakened state, state they aren't a you know the the synaptic drop off is more evident. Wow, that was well said. <laughs> I can't, yeah, I get, it. but you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I think I'm illustrating it. Yeah. Yes. Would you just? Oh my God! Would you just take? I know you're swinging Mountain Dew. Penicillin. Oh my gosh! Are you on like a, a preventative dose of that? I had had low oral surgery at the end of last oh. week, so. Oh, so you were holding that off. First of all, I give you credit if you had surgery and you weren't complaining about it. I would have bet my life I would have heard about it. You just, did you make a choice not to complain? Didn't or, even think about it. That's what a person who's lying would say. I can't believe that. You're the type that would say, Oh, I didn't do so well there. You know, I just had oral surgery. Uh, the pain's distracting me. It was Thursday. Me. I'm still, fine. Still, I think that the fact you didn't say that Friday is, let's just say it's an upset. And I'm, oh. giving, I'm giving you a compliment. Thank ki- you. Kind of. Yeah, probably minus 300 I'd be. Yes. Yeah, about maybe higher. Yep. <laughs> let's talk about, well, we've talked about baseball. We've got some more of that. On tape, we talked about Drew Brees and all that. That's coming up. We did the one thing left that really interests me, and then we got best bets from you, Faz, Esler, and the Hitman. I mean, a smorgasbord. NBA approves the twenty-two team restart. You've got extensive advantage disadvantage. Let's go through them one at a time. This is where the money's made. Point number one. Point number one. I really think in the big three that this restart favors Milwaukee. It's all about continuity in my eyes. Let's compare and contrast Milwaukee to the Lakers to the Clippers. So Milwaukee, basically all the key pieces are intact. They've been there all year long. They do have two new players, Wes Matthews, Kyle Korver, but neither one of these guys is in their top six in terms of scoring average. So Milwaukee is not a team that we would have expected to have continued to have grown and improved as the season progressed. Let's compare and contrast that. So let me ask you, with Brogdon being gone, that was a big question mark coming in. Wouldn't you say that the other players who are picking up the slack with, you know, Giannis... Guy nice anti-toko umpo. <laughs> ...being, you know, taking on without, uh, you know, with, with an, in a way, a new constituted team, even though there's not new players, wouldn't having to compensate for... 
the absence of a key piece from last year be a change in a way? Certainly. But the fact that uh, Milwaukee already back in February had a point differential this year that was better than even last year and was playing at such a high level, clearly they've gotten by just fine with George Hill and not, with, and not having Brogdon. Okay. So what you're saying is all teams have change. Milwaukee had the least. And thus... Which do you think teams, and I know what the consensus opinion here is, do you think teams that needed time for a change benefit or, or, or are hurt by this? They were hurt, the teams with the most um, uh, changes in their lineup and new players coming why, in to start so the game. So the theory is when they come back, they go into camp and all that, there's almost a restart? Exactly. But couldn't the case be made that this is a second training camp? That if anything, you're trading the, the extra games. So how many games did the typical team have left? So they were like at 62 or so, right? Right. So they had uh, in 20, a little less than 20. So there's going to be a minus 12 games, let's call it. Because they're going to play eight to end the regular yes. season. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. So minus 12 is 12 games. How does that equate with the second training camp? Yes. I never really thought about that. So they're going to have like three weeks of training camp. Is that worth, so 21 days, they would have probably played, what, 10 games, almost 12 games during that time, yes. right? Yes. So here's the question. Do you gain more or less games versus training camp? Because I think mostly you would think games, except the NBA has so few days during the regular season where they actually practice. They can say it's so hard to put in, it's so hard to put in new offensive stuff or new whatever that maybe those 21 straight days without a game are more valuable than another 12 games at the end of the season. You know, i got to be honest. I never thought about that whole extended training camp type of situation that might really benefit the newly acquired players that haven't even been there a full year. Yeah. So, like, I'm thinking about the Clippers, for instance. You know, they acquired two guys that are important in the rotation, Marcus Morris He's only played 12 games. Reggie Jackson, he's only played nine. And so my take was, wait a minute, these guys are going to play now a fourth of the season in games versus a third of the season, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not enough time. You bring up a, a really interesting point that, but wait a minute, now we can have intense practice and work on things that we never could have during the regular season. Yeah, and if anything, especially if the Clippers, whatever intensity they would have had, down the stretch, accepting they didn't really care about the one seed, it seems, versus a, a focused training camp, I, you know, I don't know. And I think the more we talk about the NBA stuff, the more we're going to realize that we got to be super attuned to what we see early. Yes. I mean, you know, back when I would bet dogs, at some stage, anyone that bets horses or dogs – they start thinking, if I look at these animals coming out, can I tell which one's really feeling good? If one's jumping, what does that mean? Well, I never could figure it out eventually. But what I'll tell you is it might be like that. I want to see pictures. I mean, who's overweight? Like We don't know. There's so much, uh, there's so much variance. There's so much range between how in shape some of these guys are going to be. Right? I want to, before the first game, I want to make sure that how in shape these people are. Yeah, right? and I think... So my point being, first game or two, if someone loses two straight, they lose both by 30, is it motivation? 
Is it they're not in shape? Watch the body chemistry. Do the Washington Wizards really want to be there? Do the Portland yeah. Trailblazers want to be there? I think that you bring up a great point that maybe we would wait this game one of the restart maybe four times higher. That might be high than a, a regular season game one during when we were pretty confident in our ratings, right? The default is don't overdo any one game's value. I think of all the professional sports leagues ever, the first two or th- two games for this NBA will tell us more than any two games. And even that won't be clear because let's say there's a team that has nothing to play for. They look bad. But then all of a sudden the playoffs come and the motivation is different. Yeah. So this is going to be like a puzzle wrapped in a riddle, I think. Yeah, it's a great point because let's face it, there's no home court to be gained. You've got teams like the Dallas Mavericks sitting in that number seven seed and they're like, ah. You know, what do these games really matter? We're not slipping to eight. So if Dallas doesn't play well particularly, maybe they're just, you know, working on things and it won't be their focus versus a team that maybe has something very tangible to go ahead and achieve. For instance, in the West, we talked about the Utah Jazz. You mentioned Bogdanovich being out. By all reports, the Jazz are a team we're going to look to fade more than likely in the playoffs. Well, they're in the four seed. The fifth and sixth seeds, Oklahoma City and Houston, they got every motivation in the world to move up to that number five seed. So they get to play the Jazz in the first yeah. round. So first off, Bondanovich, we were talking about on the the other sh- right on the radio show, but um, I think. Well, here's my question, because I was thinking something else, which is. Do the younger players have an advantage? I'm, I'm hearing people say the whole getting in shape faster and all that, yes. But I'm thinking, is this venue going to be like an AAU venue? And that the idea of there's not a ton of fans in the stands. Like, when's the last time LeBron played a game that matters without a full stadium? And even the younger guys that AAU obviously had fans, but not like, you know, there were gyms. They were gyms. And number two, they play, probably played in the summer leagues recently. When's LeBron ever had an experience like that? Ever? Interesting. Where, the backdrop on his, on his three-point shots and the like, not just seeing the, any fans. Or just the or... general a- energy. Yeah. Right? It's like, is this for, you know, because you know there's cues when the stakes are high, right? You go to a TV taping, there's certain things you always see and they say, oh, this is for real. But you do a TV taping in a completely different environment that doesn't have those cues you're like, I'm, I'm talking about my experiences now, is you got to remind yourself this is a TV taping. Does, do maybe some of the veterans just feel like, ah, this, especially ones with questionable motivation to start with in the first eight games, they feel like, ah, this, the stakes aren't really high here. Yeah, it's an exhibition game. And- yeah, I mean, I, we're talking subconscious to some degree here. I just feel like the young players, there's going to be no doubts. This is what you know. Mm-hmm. They, these They're are used to this. Yes, I, I don't know. Point. I've never heard anyone say that. It's just a feeling I've got. I'm going to think about the question of. I think in some cases the games would have helped more. I think in some cases the practice will help more. My thoughts are if it's a player that hasn't been uh, integrated into the team, I, you know, because just the lack of games. I feel like games help more because it's not about strategy. It's about playing full speed and seeing getting the feel of the other person. I think there's other situations, the strategy and stuff around practice is better. It's going to be a team-by-team, I think. But I don't think it's obviously a disadvantage. 
Yeah, I, and I I got to be honest. You're, this is eye opening what you're saying because I was just looking. I got my little, little color code yeah. for the Lakers. And hey, Anthony Davis, Avery Bradley, Danny Green, Dwight Howard all joined the team. They played for you know this full season, and they acquired Marquise Morris. I put him in green, and I was going to kind of kind of just base it upon that. And I never really occurred to me that, like, wow. This is almost like a preseason, only it's better than preseason because now the sense of urgency is there. And you've got the benefit. It's almost like an extended version of when the 49ers would stay in Youngstown. The, the, the midseason camp feel has advantages. This is like a three-week version. Great, great example. We saw how the Niners fired on all cylinders this past year, clobbering my Bengals week two, and then, of course, winning against New Orleans after they spent the next trip east after they lost to Baltimore. So Jason Tatum played AAU in 2016, LeBron in 2002. Now, and even LeBron back then when playing AAU was uh, big crowds always, right? They used to have his high school games on TV yes. back before they did any of that. The, I do think, so my question here to coaching, my thought is whenever you have something unusual, the better coach benefits. Do you think the Celtics' youth, I'm hearing, benefits? I'm hearing lack of ego. I mean, if general Boston's got a lot of talent for not having any super superstars, like the types that would be saying, hey, let's consider this union thing, or, you know, Stevens. Do the, to what degree do you think when you add it all up, the Celtics benefit from this? Yeah, I think the Celtics, it's a big plus. They've got Stevens, the most people consider to be one of the best coaches in the NBA. You've got a young team, so that's going to certainly help them. You, you won't expect them to be out of shape. And you got a team, frankly, that was a little bit banged up. I know that Brown had, had an injury that uh, he was who fighting wasn't with. wasn't banged up? Yeah, but, but the Celtics had like three guys though, that were on the list that you know should be 100% now. And Clippers did too, right? And so did Milwaukee. I mean, yeah, I mean, well, you're, you're right. Every, in a long season. I mean, maybe the Lakers were the one that just had that great weekend. You would say they lost momentum, but they wouldn't have kept that momentum for the playoffs. The 76ers and Bede and Simmons were both, um, you know, missing time as well. So you, you bring up a good point. The whole, the whole East was banged up, yes. Okay. What has been the change in Boston? Because what I'm fascinated by is the marketplace considering this, any of this. So if we just look at Boston's uh, odds to win the title, um, let's say March 1st or, you know, the last time before there was any sense of the season, you know, maybe March 8th versus now. Has there been a change? I've not seen a change I'm, right around. I'm looking right now. It's 20 to 1 in March and it's 15 to 1 now. Hmm. I thought it was 15 to 1 both times. Okay. Okay. So remember, this is why w- the, the odds we quote, we have a very specific shop consensus amongst – Three books, I think. And it, at least if you do it the same way, methodology, you're going to get it generally. Yeah. So that's interesting. Because I've heard Boston as, I think the Stevens thing is an obvious element of it that people can latch on to. I think some of the other stuff. But maybe now is the time to go through the other teams because it's your belief as the Lakers, big down arrow, Milwaukee, or check that. Clippers, big up arrow. Explain why. Because if the Lakers and Clippers meet in the Western Conference Finals... Which is expectation. Which is expectation, right? The Lakers would have had a huge home court advantage because there would have been four games that the Lakers would have been the home team. And you could argue, hey, they don't have as big a home court advantage. The Clippers do 
uh, play on that court as well. But the fans are clearly for the Lakers big time in those four games. And frankly, the three games where the Clippers were the quote-unquote home team, I still think the Lakers have the home a slight I, crowd yeah, advantage. I, yeah, I don't think there's any thinking to it. Is you know it's smaller, but let's just say this: the Lakers went from having an advantage in all seven games, all seven, to having an advantage in none. Yes, it's a pretty big deal. Then you add in the Clippers' health better, and then if you say, hey, maybe this idea that they have to reacclimate isn't as big because of the camp. Maybe it's a net neutral. Seems like the Clippers' odds should have went way up. Yes. You agree? I agree. Why are you talking like a computer? Because I'm looking at the Clippers' odds. And they did, you know, they, they so weren't. I don't, you're supposed to talk yeah. as you, like, tell us what you're thinking. Well, I'm thinking, what is going on with the Clippers? Because they were 3-1 to one back mm-hmm. in March, and now they're plus 340. Okay. So the Clippers' odds have gotten— So what's going on is people aren't betting them. And what, what, yeah, people aren't betting them. And the reason they're not betting them is because of this continuity issue, I believe. I don't think so. You don't so. think so? Why, why is I don't no think one betting future, them? I don't think future bettors are thinking mm-hmm. about continuity issue. Future bettors are—and uh, again, I'm not even sure we know. I mean, in a weird way, it took me 30 seconds to get you to think maybe the continuity issue yeah. goes the other way. So yeah. Whenever you can be convinced that quickly, it's a sign it's not it's it's not baked fully. And I think most people haven't been thinking about. It. I mean, in general, what were, you made an interesting point. The odds of this title not being decided are much higher than a, a given year. I Meaning, eight games before the playoffs, if you say, "What's the odds that the NBA title won't be decided?" It's tiny. The odds here are much higher, right? Who knows what happened? I mean, second COVID. It could be there's some, I mean, I'm not even going to say something, but there could be some type of event that happens down in one place that they had to shut the whole thing down, right? You know, so the odds that you're going to let them hold your money for a long time and have no resolution to it. I mean, you told me you're less inclined to play season long things right now, right? Yes. And the theory being, there's. Whatever edge you have, it's a little bit smaller because there's a real chance that it doesn't get resolved. Yeah, well, especially in the NFL where things could resolve, but if I'm betting season wins, I need 16 full games to have mm-hmm. to have action, right? So I think in general people – and listen, betters that move numbers, no, you know, there's not a lot of them that have enough money that they weren't tightening their belts. So yeah. the, the idea was that just in general, these future odds, people are probably, even the $5,000, $10,000 bettors are saying, yeah, I can bet this in a month, right? Yeah. So in general, that Boston move in that context is even more imp- uh, impressive. Right. With virtually nobody betting, yeah. somehow they've gone from 20 to 1 to 15 to 1. Yes. So that could be a quirk in the, in the methodology, as in it just that given day, mm-hmm. but... That's good. It's going to be interesting to see. Other factors. Anything else? I think we covered the key ones. All right. So let's go over it one more time. Coaching. What other, I mean, as you're looking at the coaches, who falls in the category of you give them a plus sign? Do you have any minus signs? You know, I haven't broken down. I got to be honest. I have not broken down the coaches. Who do you consider to be the best coaches in the league? Stevens. And he's the only one that stands out. So Popovich to me. doesn't stand out at this point. No, because Popovich. So at what point would you have said Popovich? How recently would you said Popovich is the best coach in basketball? I, two years ago. 
And now he doesn't even he's not even clearly here, here, here's why. I think if if the Spurs were contending, I would still put Popovich as a top coach. But the fact that they are just only here because of a quirk in the playoff um, format. But possibly. if anything, it could be, hey, it's a sign that we got a chance. Like this is like from God above, we got a chance. It's, we're a team of destiny. Now Aldridge is out, out for the year. Yeah. It seems like now was that did that feel like that was a choice? He that opted was... for elective surgery in April. So he's like hanging out saying, you know something? It's not a nose job, is it? No, it was a lingering issue oh. that he got taken care of. I mean, now listen, correct me if I'm wrong, Utah has a similar situation, right, Fez? Yeah, Utah has Bogdanovich, their second best player. is um, he, he was playing all year with that wrist injury, mm-hmm. and he just said, you know what, I'm going to get this taken care of in April. Yes. First off, as a society, as a sports-loving society, the idea, and, and, you know, let's swing this around to Kevin Durant. You know, how many people have now quoted, after the Achilles, so-and-so was back after 330 days, and so-and-so after 390, so-and-so. Like, Durant, and this is an injury like most, that the, the recovery times are improving as the years go by. Better technology, et cetera. Durant... Announced, I think, a day or two ago. I'm not going to play under any circumstances this year. But he's, you know, he's collecting his full salary, yeah. thirty plus mil. And I get it. You can be sympathetic to the idea that he came back. You could say, you know, some some would say early for the team. Blew hurt himself. Now he doesn't want any piece of that. But the idea of making more than 99 percent of people making a lifetime, and then by you know bad things happen with COVID, but it gives you a chance to playing the playoffs, and to say, I'm going to choose not to see you next year. The idea that's not more of a conversation, I mean, you can say I'm going to defend it, but the idea that it doesn't even warrant mention, it's kind of weird, don't you think? Uh, Yes, and what I also thought was weird is why is Durant making this announcement? I would have thought Brooklyn would have said, look, you know, Kevin Durant will not be available to play for us this year. I thought that it would be a team announcement, not a player. You mean to take the heat for Durant? Yes. Except maybe they don't want to take the heat, yeah. right? Because they don't agree with it either. How could you? Well, I think team? by definition they disagree the fact that it's Kevin Durant making that announcement, yeah. right? Or it might. Nope. But listen, I think what happened with Golden State, where there was a sense of there was a misaligned interest that Golden State had one thing they wanted and Durant wanted the other. Maybe Durant's just he's rich enough to bring in his own little almost shadow front office with him. He's got his PR guy, you know. You see that with doctors, too, right? You're going to let a team doctor? How do you know the doctor's telling you the truth and not with the team? Because the team gets to pick that. I get that. I don't know. Um, on June 5th, this is the quote. My season is over. I don't think, and this is Durant, I don't think I'm ready to play the type of intensity right now in the next month. So the first question is, how can you know what you're going to feel in a month? At minimum, it seems like he should say, you know, and I get it. You want to get, you don't, this hurts him because of expectations. It would have hurt him more, he thinks, if he would have let it play out. I think it's the opposite. If he said, listen, maybe, first you admit the truth to start with. You say, I can't lie. I'm a little gun shy about coming back early. 
I tried it, and it's been a hard year coming back. But you know what? I want to try to give Brooklyn the best chance to win this title. I'm going to work extra hard every day between now and then. I'm going to try to get ready. And if I am, I'm going to play. And if I'm not, I'm not. But I'm going to try my best, and hopefully the fans will support me. I don't know how anyone has a huge Mm. problem with that. Now, that might be somewhat of a lie, but obviously this isn't about the truth. It's about PR. What do you think, Mackenzie? I 100% agree with you. I mean, just imagine if the Nets beat the Raptors in the first round, which is not crazy. The Raptors aren't some kind of juggernaut. Then you have an extra two weeks, and you're three series away from winning the title. Yep. Or even who's to say they win the first two rounds? Exactly. I don't get why you close that door right now. And, I mean, listen, I get the whole mythologizing that came around Jordan's documentary, but, I mean, it's a very different scenario and a very different outcome. And, quite frankly, we're going to think about these two players very differently. And rightfully so. Maybe it's a time of the age. I don't know. But I do think Aldridge getting the nose jaw. Oh, wait. The elective surgery, and the same scenario with Utah, that's not just the absence of those players. It's a telling sign about the level of engagement those teams have. Exactly right. If I'm, if I'm um, DeRozan, you know, the Spurs' best player, I'm like, wait a minute. You know, am I going to go all out and maybe get injured? When- well, now we're talking chicken and the egg. Mm. You're saying because of what Audridge did, it's going to demotivate the Spurs. You might be right. But it's also potentially the Spurs or Utah. Generally, the general enthusiasm is so low, it led to the decision to have the surgery. Yeah, so it's really, it's really both, it, well, right? It could be both. We yeah, don't know. Could, yes. Uh, but we don't need to know. We just know that any combination seems to be a negative. They're, off, they're not playing, and they're not playing for some reason that's either causing or is a result of a lack of interest. Yeah, and for all we know, we got other Utah players. We got Joe Ingles thinking, oh, I wish I had an injury I could have, have a minor surgery on to get out of going to Orlando. Okay, to me, last topic for the NBA. Well, I did have that rant about, if it wasn't 11 or so, almost, I, I think that the money grab on this way the playoffs went, it's almost like they, they needed the money from the local TV deal, so they had to have eight games. But if you look at the East... There's no reason to play any of these games. So unless they made the ninth seed, Washington, viable, there was no reason to play any of these games. So they found some convoluted way to make Washington have a chance. Within four games, there's a, and there's two games. Like in the history of organized sports at the professional level in the United States, major sports, there's never been a time that if you were within X games, whatever number, that you somehow got – a play-in. Have you, do you ever know of that happening? Never. And in the history of organized sports at the professional level in the North America, I don't think there's ever been a time that there was a series that one team had to win a different number of games than the other. That is truly bizarre. So yes. For two, to, in order to make the East play these games to satisfy the TV contract, they had to break two rules that, or two firsts that have never happened before. And everyone, no one in the media is talking about it. 
No one's talking about the fact that if Washington had been eight games out of the playoffs. It would have been within six games. Exactly. Uh, oof. Hey, listen. I totally respect that money is a part of it. When does it all end, huh? How many yachts can you water ski behind? How much is enough? Well, we know we haven't reached the limit yet. Sixers. Great at home. Horrible on the road. And it's neither. What do we do with them? You know, I think that Orlando's closer. Hold on, this is good. What do we do with them? We treat Philly more like they're at home in Orlando. And here's here's why, RJ. Oh, wait. Ladies and gentlemen, please hold all tickets. The stewards have posted the inquiry sign. I don't agree with that. I, I, I would bet on RJ to win this argument, but let me make my case. No hostile crowd. There won't be any crowds in Orlando. No travel. Clearly, 76ers don't handle travel well. Well, no. No, no, no. We know they don't handle the road route. Do we know for a fact that the travel is the part we of it? We don't know which part of this. We do know routine will be there in Orlando, and I think routine tends to favor the home team. Further, I agree with that. I think no distractions or limited distractions for nightlife. Mm. They're living in a bubble. One's, what, what is one of the reasons they may be having trouble on the road? Distractions for nightlife. That won't be there in Orlando. Good point. Good point. Here's the question. Michael Lombardi had this one. First round, I agree with the part about the distractions. But you know when you have, as Willie Nelson said, the nightlife ain't a good life, but it's my life. Uh huh. Take your word for it. (laughs) I think if you live that life and you are locked down and you don't get a chance for it, does that make you more focused or less focused? For a short time, I think it makes you more focused. And if you got to the finals or even the, I think round two is the danger. If somehow the Sixers win round one, they'll be far enough away from the title that they won't be like focused no matter what. But they're going to be far enough away from the last nightlife to be distracted. So, you know, you lock Mm. a kid up into detention for a short period of time. Maybe it helps him do his homework. But after a while, he's getting more restless, right? Mm -hmm. Matt, during COVID, how did the kids do as time went on? Restless. More restless. Now, you might say, why are we talking about these people like they're kids? Well, you tell me. So that one's more complicated. Do you really think it's the, the, the screaming crowd that is causing the problems? Or, I don't know. That's an interesting question. What, I mean, do you, do you have any specifics other than, like, we know Embiid, they like, seem to like the nightlife kind of thing, and Embiid's the type that won't diet, right? You know, like, he's the type of... I was thinking not- of the nutrition and Embiid. Yeah. Maybe he's better when he's eating at home yeah. than, you know, on the road, and who knows what his choices are. More I think about it is I don't know, but I'll tell you this. I think we do know a disciplined coach, a good a coach that got enough respect, he says, it's going to be this, it's going to be this. That's not what the Sixers have. So in a way, we're saying the structure of the... The structure of the way this is being put on got to be strong enough to trump this team's lack of discipline. I don't think that when you have a bunch of millionaires, that could be the case. They're, they're going to be treated like they're, 
Like they're at some football camp or something in high school. You think that's, I mean, they could fly a helicopter in to bring them whiskey. I mean, not that they're going to do it, but what I'm saying is, are they really good? I mean, are there going to be people that just defect? <laughs> they just say, I'm going. And what would they do? If B went out, snuck out, and TMZ had pictures of him in Miami, what, does the NBA really say you're in quarantine for 5, 10 days? I don't know. Do you think maybe he'll check? And then if a team gets down 3-1... And it, and that, that is, no, that is very strong that if a team gets down 3-1, all of a sudden it's like, what am I doing in quarantine in Orlando? Uh-huh. Mm, you know how we – because typically we like to bet on teams. You know, they're stuck 1-3, the whole zigzag or whatever you want to call it. Now is a case where, hey, wait a minute. we got to play on December 20th or whatever that date's going to be next year, right? The last thing we want to do is extend. Well, that plus, I mean, if there is a – significant sacrifice come round two or three but then because of the time you've been there but then if the if the odds of you advancing plummet to near you know let's say you're down 3-0 is that in those two days in between games i gotta be honest that oh three the light bulb has just gone on i want I think that is one of the strongest things you've ever said. I want I no part of an 0-3 team. No way, no, no possibility. We've already, we've already seen that 0-3 teams at home stink up the joint. In general, even with a home crowd, with no crowd and in quarantine, pack my bags, I'm ready to go home. Um, I had a Macho Man drop there that actually didn't come up for some reason. Wow. You know, I've just been too long. At that point, the interesting bet is, does someone flee? Because remember, it, it'll be like two days in between games at minimum, right? They're not back-to-backs in the, in, in the playoffs. No, they're not having back-to-backs. No, no playoffs. back-to-backs. But I think with no travel, it'll be interesting to see what yeah, the but, schedule will look but, like. But when that right? game goes, oh, you know, when it's 3-0, it's 48 hours before they play minimum, the next yeah, game. Yeah. You think Embiid's hanging out at the dorm? Or eating healthy? I don't know. I, to me, the fact we're saying I don't know so much is a good sign of how interesting this is going to be. Closing thoughts on the NBA. Is there anything that you think is bettable right now? Or is this laying the groundwork? Laying the groundwork. I think the Clippers. Who? I mean, can you think of any reason net-net they're worse off? Just the very fact... That the Lakers we know are worse off means that the Clippers' odds improve. Yes. Right? Significantly. And it was, I mean, and now they're getting, so right now, final thing on the NBA. You got a Milwaukee ticket you've given, you know, out here three to one. Yes. Do you think that and that Milwaukee's odds have gotten better or worse? Slightly better. All right. Even though they don't have home court. Yes. How do you make that case? Home court all the way through to zero home court. Now, how do you make that case? Milwaukee was clear-cut the best team in the NBA. Uh-huh. Because they, we've shortened the season, 
I see there being less time for somebody else to suddenly emerge. Maybe that's maybe that's faulty logic. Let me think yeah. about that. Because emerge, who knows you mean if, as if there's some truth, or you mean all the games give them reps that are going to help them emerge? Yeah, I'm, if I mean, anything, you Boston would say Boston might emerge, and you, know? you would also make the case that. Just this is the biggest disruption we've ever seen in the middle of the season. Why would the team? Why wouldn't there not be more variants? And more variants, yeah. But I also think the idea that whatever it is that led Milwaukee to play so well, it's been shook up as much as it's ever been shook up in the history of the NBA. Meaning, it doesn't mean they won't keep playing well. It means the chance of then continuing it is less than it's ever been because there's more variables. You know, I I got to be. I'm thinking about this now, and we. We discontinued in March. Mm-hmm. We're going to start back up basically in August, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a five-month break. It's almost the Four same. Half, yeah. It's almost the same. Think about it. An NBA Finals in seasons. ends in June, starts up in you know, oh, Halloween. Right. That's a good point. So it's almost like— Well, it starts up now October 15th, wasn't it? They were starting think, even earlier. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. It's almost like it's not—it's yeah. next year. It's a full offseason. It's next year. But with the same roster. Am I so sure that Milwaukee's going to be as good? Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm thinking the odds are clearly yes, but it's like less than it would be. Lose home court. Yeah, how can I be more optimistic? You're right. I, and I think I, I hung my hat on this whole continuity idea versus the two L.A. teams. That's what, that was my, yeah. the crux and, and of the, my handicap. And, and here's the interesting part, though. I think the odds might suffer for all the favorites. If we agree in general, which goes against the Clippers' idea, if we go in general— does Houston have a better chance than they did normally? Yes. What team doesn't? I mean, I would make the case they all have a better chance. Even if you could point out reasons why they have less, the, 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 the long shot teams, you might be able to say this team has less of a chance than the other long shots because of X. I wonder if that is big enough to overcome that the increased variance just mm. makes them everyone but the favorite. Except for the Utah Jazz. Uh, maybe. I mean, but I hear you. That's a pretty big yeah. deal because then you got the Gobert, you know. I mean, but in general, I think that this flattens the, the curve. But yes. we're not talking about the COVID curve. We're talking about the bell curve. And I think that the, tail, the, the tails get fatter. And the bell curve says that we've had, what, one champion that was an eight seed going back? Was that, was that 60 years? Well, no, no champion. Well, one eight seed that had made the finals. Yeah, and yes. that was in the strike year. And one six seed in 1994? Yeah, well, Houston's either 94 or 95, yeah. yeah. But what I'm saying is, it, it, coincidentally, we've only had a couple of unusual seasons, and one of them was when the Knicks made it was a strike year yeah. against the Spurs, right? Yeah. So I think that, oh, I know the NBA has, the, their champion is the best team far more often than any other league, any other sport. And I think this year is more wide open than ever. Which has to hurt all the favorites, just does. Does it hurt the favorites more than the extra forty dollars and the fact I think that net net this has been good some of the circumstances? I don't know. I still think the Clippers are a good bet, but if there's ever a time to look for long shots, and maybe we'll do that next week. Let's each bring in one long shot, and we'll make the case. That this is the long shot to bet this year because this is the year for long shots in the NBA and this is the team. Sounds good. And now? Don't know about the future. That's anybody's guess. Ain't no good reason for getting all depressed. Fire up your pad and pencil. I give you a piece of my mind.
Go Feds, go. All right, I am doing an alternative season win bet, RJ. I'm taking the Dallas Cowboys. I'm going under nine wins, plus 215. I got to give you credit for this one. You're talking about, we talked about in the NBA, hey, this year is like no other year. And in the NFL, same thing applies. You know, no OTAs, limited practice time. And because of that, I think— And and factors we don't quite know what they even are. Yes, and just how teams are going to handle, you know, the Zoom meetings and the preparation. Now, put on top of that, what's going to really cause a shakeup possibly with the team's performance coaching changes? So there's been five of them, the Giants' new coach, Carolina, Washington, Dallas and Cleveland. So Dallas, McCarthy comes in. What is the transition going to be like going from Garrett to McCarthy? I think there's a big variance associated with that. There's also Variances in uncertainty. It could be good. It could be bad. Exactly right. I'm really um, piggybacking upon your whole concept of you. You kind of put the light bulb over my head. Hey, we could see teams do a whole lot better or a whole lot worse this year versus other years. And so now with Dak... There's been all these distractions with that going on, with the contract talks and the like. There's another uncertainty which could well produce a, a better or a worse season for the Cowboys. And then you add it up. The Cowboys, you know, before the draft, the Cowboys were supposed to win nine and a half games. That generally leaked up to 10 in most places. Now I can get under nine plus 215. And when you say leaked up to 10, between when and when? Between the draft and. Yeah. So the aftermath of. All the draft Knicks talking about how great of a draft Dallas had when history tells us no one really knows. Exactly. And they drafted You're a, starting to get smarter, Steve. They drafted a Because you're taking, you're taking all the things you've always been good at, and it feels like you're plugging up. Now, this might not be good for my bankroll. but <laughs> So they drafted a sexy, a sexy wide receiver on top of it, and it's a public team anyways in Dallas. And, you know, I'm looking at this now, and I'm like, you know what? Dallas only won eight games last year. Now, they had great stats. Dallas was a team that you could argue by the pure stats they should have won 10 or 11 games. Dallas was also a bully. They really beat up on the seven bad teams they played last year. Well, they play five bad teams this year. They don't play seven. Uh, obviously, in division, the four games and the Bengals added up. I could see the Cowboys easily going 8-8. Eight and eight, eight. Not easily. I could certainly see the Cowboys going 8-8, eight and eight, not being any better. This year, losing all these, close, these closer I think, games. Yeah, I think the key, first of all, you only got to pick up an extra game. So they don't have to lose all of the closer games. What you're yeah. saying is you have a bias towards or you have a strong opinion towards the under anyway. And what you're saying is, hey, if I got any of these win total opinions, in general, the variance is going to be higher than usual years because of COVID. So I'm going to be inclined to go in that direction put a piece at the normal price and put, you know, or half a piece and half a piece at the big plus money. But then if you think there's an extra bias towards the under or towards the direction you like, meaning amongst all the variants, more of it's going to go in my direction, then it's another reason to love this bet. So let's think about that. Dak might start the season fine, but if they lose a couple of games... The chance that the team that they're going to start Andy Dalton a game just to show Dak, then Dak gets disgruntled. I would love. I don't know the right price. I'd love to go um, under seven and a half games for Dallas. You know what would be the fair price? Mm. Right. So every half game's worth fifty cents. But then as you get further away, it's worth even more, right? Yes. Each incremental half game's worth like fifty-five cents. All right. So do that math real quick. If I wanted to go under seven and a half, all right. Give me a moment. Yeah. Take your time. 
fact, I'll play, um, let's see, I'm going to play a little something for the, oh, here we go. You'll like this. Now let's play big bank, take little bank. Under seven and a half plus 420. Now, would you want to book that? No, I want to bet. <laughs> exactly. Right? Because I could see a real domino effect happen. Now, you know, with these odds, it doesn't really matter. You only need to be the one game beyond. I don't know if anyone's going to offer them, but I think it's really interesting. And it also goes into the concept that, the, that there's more causality than people realize, and that's why the stock market and all of these models that high finance people do, starting with long-term capital management and that, that blow-up, is there's connections we don't see. And eventually, when a couple of things happen, you know, it was the same thing when you were saying about Trump way back in 2016. You said, I'm looking at these odds, and it seems like he's got to win these six states, and you do the math. And it's like, you know, as I remember we had this conversation at ESPN building. I said, they're correlated, though. If he ends up being four points better than people think, it's going to be in all the states probably. Yeah, right? it's good. it was a great point by you because let's face it, if Trump wins Pennsylvania, he's a, he's a way better chance to win Michigan. Yeah. And in fact, he's favored to win Michigan, Yeah, even then, though he was a dog before, right? Exactly. And it's still well, a big dog. But um, And to me, any political junkie, you know, that that's just common. And it's not you're not a political batter. Yeah. And I'm not a political batter, but I did pretty well on that one. But the, the reality is... There's causality we don't see. We don't mean not see as in we don't, our human mind can't understand it or doesn't identify it. But there's, and that's why I also think if all you do is look at a team's stats and say what they should have won, I think maybe the distance between that and the reality, a third of it I think is real. So if Dallas won eight, they should have won 11, let's just use it for round numbers, I'm going to assume they should have won 10. Because I think there's times there's something that's causing them to lose and only win eight that we don't identify as, hey, they're doing something wrong and we don't even know it's wrong. Yes, and when you go— And it's the opposite with Belichick and New England. Yes, and when you go through Dallas and those eight losses, I didn't find any where you said, wow, you know, they really should have won that game. Yeah, but that's luck, though. It needs to be thought about as all one long game, right? Because the fact that they lose at the buzz or at the end or not— in, in the end, we're looking at the whole season and saying, we got this many minutes, 16 times 60. What do we gain from that? And then we can say, what do we learn? We can also say, we're going to invalidate these minutes or diminish their weight because it was more than 14 points. There's all kinds of different ways to look at it. Yes. But like a poker session, it doesn't matter when you win or lose, right, about how good you are. <laughs> but why would a season be any different, right? The fact that randomly they didn't find a spot where they could have won that doesn't well, mean they shouldn't well, have won that many yeah, games, just, right? just specifically, like, there are games like the Jets where they just got their butts kicked the entire game, and then they got a couple backdoor scores and lost by one score at the end. Okay, but they, so still, lost, be, they still lost the game. Right, but it wouldn't. So, it, but, but what, what I'm saying, it, it would be a lot different if the Jets kicked a field goal on the final play of the game to win the game, right? I don't, you know, listen. Or it would be different. Here's the thing. I don't think, I think if you had, like, the, the highest level scientists or finance guys, all the things we're talking about, there's probably theories that mm-hmm. have thought through. I just go by a lot of common sense. And, you know, I read a lot, but I, I don't have the academic journals of decision making. Here's what I know, though. I think we could understand and point at if they lost two games because of field goals at the end. See, 
it makes sense that they're really a 10-win team. Look at those two games. It's a lot easier. It's easy to understand. I don't think that the whole idea of stats telling us a true story has anything to do with that, though. You need to have a methodology that says, I'm going to look at all the stats, and then I'm going to adjust them for this. Blowouts, injuries, whatever. Then I'm going to trust them. If you don't do that, then you shouldn't do any of it in a way because there's nothing worse than being half stats and half not because then you get to choose when it matters, yeah. and that means it doesn't matter. So in general, do you trust the stats? And I think you do, except you believe that garbage time and stuff, like most people, shouldn't be weighted as highly, right? Yes. So once you make those adjustments, doesn't matter if a given random, but not random, 60-minute mark, the game's over, it's just like if you stop the session in poker, either up or down a little bit. Does it really matter? Oh no, and that's you know it's one of the biggest fallacies. Poker, I think. So why the, would it matter anymore yeah. in these football games? Every play we're looking at separately, effectively, right? Yes. Or are and that's the thing. If you're not thinking like that, you're really not. But the system has to be able to account for the fact that every play is not equal, and most people don't trust the system to do that, so they want to add the human element. I can promise you, the stuff that's moving the numbers now with the NFL, no, there's no human element. If there is, they figure out how to quantify it and get it into the system, mm-hmm. which is tough, right? Sure. All right, so, official bet. Official bet, best bet, Dallas Cowboys under nine season wins, plus 215. No. gets you 215. Plus 215. Good job. Now, Circa's offering that. Any other places you see? Just Circa. Now, usually with these alternatives, how many places offer it? I mean, is this common? It is not common. So how many would you, like last year, how many did? I don't recall. Was it greater than, you're not, it was less than five. Of your 29 outs? Yes. Okay. But more than just Circa? I saw it more, more than Circa, yes. Back then? Yes. Last year? Okay. I know Five Dimes does it. I don't know. Um, I can't name the other books that do it. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I'm not sure that's something. Let's just say this. You know what we'll do? Next week, I'll give you a bonus. And we got two more best bets coming. But I'll give you, Fez, I, I'm, I love the thinking. I'm just not sure best bet you can only bet in Vegas is, it should be like a bonus probably. Mm-hmm. But good analysis. I'll give an RJ special next week to make up for it. Now, Diamond Dave Esler, the hitman, Tommy, school teacher. He weighs 155 pounds. He said he's up to 165. Oh, I just made that up. I mean, I know he was thin. <laughs> That's amazing. He just sent that to me. Why is he telling you his weight? Oh, because he's been hearing what I've been saying and saying that. I don't know. Ah. He said, tell him I'm 165. All right. <laughs> That's well, why. Listen, the hitman Hearns was not much more than 155 either. He was pretty tough. But he looks so innocent. Like, Could you imagine him walking in a place and thinking, uh-oh, but he's going to rob his place. Ski mask time. You know, he's going to get mad at me. What? God. He reminds me of But the, he's, so, he's so slight. He What's reminds me of the cowboy in Toy Story. <laughs> but he, that's good, but he's deadly. That's the thing. He's like uh, Kaiser Sose. You never see him coming. <laughs> Let's listen to the hitman first. Best bet. Matt Stafford, comeback player of the year. Plus 900, but shop around for this one as there is a plus 1400 still available right now at BetMGM. This is a quarterback award for the most part. And in the past decade or so, quarterbacks have primarily been the recipient of this award. 
When Matt Stafford went down halfway through last season, the Lions were eighth in the NFL in points per game and fourth in yards per game. Stafford was on pace for 38 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, and a career high in passer rating, yards per attempt, and touchdown rate. The only guy that I think should be favored over Stafford is Big Ben, and we could definitely see him hit the cliff this year at his advanced age. Stafford is still young, as we said, had a great season last season before he got hurt and projects to have another good season this year. The Lions could get eight or nine wins and Stafford carries them on his back. I could see him taking home this award. Best bet, Stafford, plus 1,400, comeback player of the year. I like this. I'm going to, what do they call that? When you say plus one on Twitter? I'm going to, I mean, that's old school. I'm going to plus one this one. Here's why. What are you voting on? You're voting on a narrative. Stafford's wife, he gets hurt. He's distracted because of her fighting for her life. If he has a good season now. That's a good story. And I, you know, I don't know how much the comeback player of the year is correlated to success of the team. Feels like if he throws for 4,500 yards and they go 6-10, and 10, he still can win it. You know, McKenzie, let's do that research. I'll tweet this. What, how many wins did the comeback player of the year have? And let's go back 10 years. Got it. Uh, you know, for, we'll, we'll give it here next week, too. I'll tweet it at RJ in Vegas also earlier. But in theory, the average is eight. If there's no correlation, it'd be, you know, we only have 10 years, so it won't be that perfect. But if it's not, a, you know, if it's like eight, eight and a half, I, I'm going to feel good about that. If it, I don't have, I don't like Patricia, so if there's a correlation to winning, I'm not going to be as excited. Any sense on that? No, I I think that there can be some correlation. It could be nine, up to nine, and I still would be fine betting Stafford over. You've been here so long, your voice is cracking. Like, yeah. You're like, like Brady, little Peter Brady. So we're done, except, well, we're, you know, it's 11.20, but almost, that uh, clock's on. But it's late, but we love it. Even when there's no betting, we love it. We love the community. Around the pod. Thank you so much. We, got we some, love Diamond Dave. You got, I know. Diamond Dave's coming. We got some big announcements in the next couple of weeks about the pod. All good, good things. And Diamond Dave. Oof. Moses, when he wore short pants, Diamond Dave started. And they call him Uncle Dave. That dichotomy. He'll be here for the football se- or the, for the start of the season. We'll do a bunch of videos around him. Get Maddie Holden. The nemesis. Dave wins. He's won as much as anyone for as long as anyone in public betting life. It's really that simple. Here comes his best bet. And after that, we've got some bonus stuff, including McKenzie goes. I don't want to say off the reservation because that itself isn't even politically correct anymore. Let's say he... Mackenzie, I'll let you, last word, what's the adjective? Where did you go? I made Tupac proud tonight. Well, that's actually a good tease right there. We'll leave it at that. Here comes Diamond Dave and then Mackenzie slash Tupac channeled spiritually. Talk to you next week. NFL player prop, I bet. David Johnson, under 1,260 yards from scrimmage. 
I know he has the potential. He had over 2,000 in 2016. That was a Bruce Arians offense. This isn't. In Houston, I think Duke Johnson is still the third down back. Different system, different quarterback. Texans leading running backs the last eight years. None have had 500 yards, and that's important, and I'll tell you why. As the featured and only back, Carlos Hyde had 15 attempts per game. I'll drop that to 12 for David Johnson with Duke Johnson available. If he averages 4.2 yards per carry, that's 800 yards rushing, meaning he needs 500 more, which he's done once in five years. I think that was his one-hit wonder 2016 season. So he's going to have a better year catching the ball in a Bill O'Brien offense than any Texan has since Arian Foster in 2011. Not going to happen. David Johnson under 1,260 yards from scrimmage. I think everyone – and, hey, listen, if you're part of the PC police, congratulations. You've probably won at least the battle so far because from what I read, the whole death rate and all this – is, is so much lower than we even thought a couple weeks ago. And to some degree, this is, you know, I don't know how you explain it from the flu to this. What we know is, and I can tell you for someone, you know, that uh, anyone that thinks an 85-year-old that dies, it doesn't matter. I, I, I mean, if the quality of life is bad, I, you know, we can all debate how much it matters. I think it's fair to say it doesn't matter a ton. Or I think maybe it's more important to say sometimes it's something that the person is better off, right? But someone who's healthy at 85, yeah, the, the years lost, you know, if a 20-year-old dies, it's not just that they were the prime of their life. They lost 60 years or 70. Not as many years if you die at 85. But, you know, my grandfather had a couple of, you know, real health scares between 85 and 93 and up until 93, 94, his life was meaning, meaning he was enjoying it and he was meaning he was contributing to the world. Certain point he wasn't. But if he would have got COVID-19 at 86 and died, one, I would have been, you know, very upset. And so let's not dismiss older people dying out of hand. So obviously this is worse than the flu. Just as obviously the idea that you better do this or you better do that. And that's what science says. At some point, they better change the messaging. Because when you got people like McKenzie, you know, educated people who should be, if you're, if you're the side of science and you're losing those types with snide comments, you probably have the bar in the wrong place. The bar that needs to be jumped or transversed. And to me... It feels so analogous to what is Vegas. Fez is one of the best NFL handicappers in the world. A drunk baby flipping coins is going to hit 50%. Fez is going to hit 55 Anyone that says, oh, look, imagine, Fez, you hit 60 over like five years. It's like almost incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. And four out of ten times you're wrong, and every time people say, he's an expert? Expectations are wrong. Science, good science, uh, science that isn't conflicted by political considerations, which, again, you want to talk about another reason the right's going to question things. It's hard to say that there hasn't been some of that with global or with, uh, well, it was global warming, and then it's climate change. There's another thing. It's like... 
wait a minute, I thought it was about warming. And it's like, none of that, and it's funny, if you say something like that, it's like, oh, he's anti-science. No, it's, I'm anti-lying, right? I'm anti-fooling yourself. I'm not going to fool myself for science. I'm not going to fool myself against science. I think the NFL picks from you, Fez, are the best estimate of what's going to happen. But it's still far from 100%. I think you can say the same thing about good science. It's the best estimate. If there's any predictor of what's going to happen, I'll give science the, the, the vote. But you can't act like it's coming from the mountaintop. It's not. And because a certain faction within the pro-science wants to somehow maintain this secular type demigod-esque, oh, the scientists are the demigods, it's forcing them to lie. It's forcing them to equivocate. And it's causing, it's building up a big rationale to be questioning science, maybe more than it's healthy, right? But, I mean, Fez, you, to me, are an apolitical person. The only, I think, political feelings you have is you want to think you're a good person. So anything that you can, like, say, oh, a baby seal died, that's horrible, you do that. But generally, you're indifferent to the plight of others. Agreed? Yes. All right. But I don't think we've ever talked about this. What's happened specifically with COVID and the science side of it, how do you assess it? Well, I think that the initial projections sum up how there's there's it's so dependent upon the parameters you put in. RJ, just like I think last week we spoke about. So we're talking about models now, but let's get I mean, maybe we can skip all that. Hmm. Whatever it is that leads to the end result or the, the expectation of the model it is arrived at by consensus, by whatever. And then it's told it's given down to the masses from like the smoke coming out. The papal smoke or, oh, we've decided what our constraining variables are. Okay. And then everyone's supposed to live their lives by this now. And I'm fine with that. But it's not a religion. The whole premise of a religion is there is a perfect entity that doesn't make mistakes guiding. That's the appeal of it. You can't replace that. If you don't believe in it, then it doesn't exist. It's not science. So my question is, how do you rationalize the fact that it was playing wrong? Or how do you respond, not rationalize, how do you respond to the fact that so much was playing wrong? And at the same time, it probably was the best guess. And thus, both sides have a good point. You, again, are not going to jump on the, right, the side of the right trying to defend against sides. But doesn't it make you kind of question uh, your, the fact that you have the adherence to something that is... that is sold as something it's just not? Well, no question, because the parameters were being determined as we went. So we had so much more data come May than we did back in March. That's always the case, though. Yeah, but this was unprecedented in terms of what was going on. You mentioned the casinos had never been closed before. Now they're closed for months. This was an entirely new phenomenon, and it was very difficult so, to so, project what was going to happen. Then why weren't we told the projections were rough estimates? That are pro- That's what we should have been told. That's what we weren't told. We were given these like these curves that were like, hey, this is like a 95% confidence interval. And, and, and you look at what the current curve is, and it looks nothing like what a lot of these initial projections so, so were. So what you're saying is that they did as—like, what happened 
when it came to the evolution of the projections and such, is about what you'd expect in something that's unprecedented. Okay, so what we should have been told was, listen, here's our, our projections. We're going to be getting new data, and that new data is almost like the first week of the NFL season, second week, it's going to have an oversized influence because we've got so little data to start with. We think this is the best bet, but you know what? What happens when you have less data, Fez, to your bets? You don't do as well in your projections. Well, well, you what happens as... to the size of your bets? They go down. Right? Less confidence? Yeah. You risk less. Yes. So if you have a model you have less confidence in, what should you do? Risk Wait, less. Risk less, yes. Right? So whatever proclamations come from the mountaintop, it feels like that we should be more less likely to do drastic things, right? Because let's say that you had, you thought you had a terminal illness and then there was some test that was going to say, there's this miracle that maybe you could use this one drug to, to cure yourself. If you take the test and it says, nope, you don't qualify, it's not going to work. If you're going to whack yourself out because you're terminal after that, do you maybe take the test a second time? Do you maybe, like, if the test, though, has, like, a failure rate of 30%, you probably don't, you know, take out the knife right after the first test. Yeah. But somehow, if you would have said, huh, these are some drastic decisions being made here, aren't they? What's our confidence level on this test? I mean, this is, like, mm -hmm. basic if you owned a gas station and had a brain. You would say, what's our confidence level? Saying, all right, let's do this. Let's move in the direction we know we got to move towards. Let's get some data and figure it out. No, it's, 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 it's either nothing. I mean, whenever the federal government's involved, Republican, Democrat, it's either don't do anything or do something drastic. I mean, there never seems to be a measured response. Yeah, and just in states with comparable um, positive tests, one state's reopening, another state's like closed completely, right? It's like makes no logical sense other than and I'm politics. And, 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 right? Well, I think... Politics assumes it's like trying to win the next election. I think it's some of that. I think it's more that politics has become a religion to a lot of people. Mm. It's their strongest belief. If, you know, if it's on the right, it's that there's, you know, the government is inept and uh, we're moving towards a welfare state where hard work doesn't matter. That's the one side. The other side is a lot of racism, a lot of, you know, uh, you know, we, we're the richest country in the world, and, and it's evil that we're not helping everyone. Yeah, I mean, obviously these are cliches to some degree, but they apply a lot. And if you make it, especially from the left's perspective, if you make it about evil and justice, it feels like a religion. Right? Isn't that the terms that religions are, you know, the, the crusades were some of the bloodiest wars because what was at stake? God. Well, I mean, that sounds like something to fight for, right? Especially if you're a believer. Sure. And to this day, you look at some of the, you know, problems in the Middle East. What are they fighting over? Oil and God. Important stuff. I, I, you know, to me, the older I get, the more I realize I don't know, the more that when I do feel confident in something, I, I'm, I stick to it. But when I don't, even if I'm 80%, and to me, one of the great things about aging, and there's, you know, obviously there's downsides, 
one of the great things is you understand there's that you're going to change. You know, the hardest thing about first love is it's first and you've never it never ended. Until it ends, it's that you've never ended. Love's never faded. Love's never disappointed you. Whatever ways love ends, there's varies, varied ways. But all you know is you never loved anyone outside your family, and then one day you did. And your family's never been gone. Most kids experience, you know, even if there's a divorce, that's still around, and maybe he's in another state, but he's still there on the phone, and and then you love that third or fourth person, you know, grandparents might be in the mix of sibling, say, like, oh, someone else, this is great. Oh, look, I get orgasms with this too. Like, it's the, you know, if it's old, you know, whatever the age is, you know, some kids it's younger than others. Faz, I mean, I don't think 24 was too old. <laughs> I mean, that was your choice. <laughs> Slow development. <laughs> but, <laughs> but <laughs> if you ask me right now to give you the names of my eight wives, I couldn't do it. That took a while to get to that place, right? <laughs> and that first love, you don't know there's ever a time after. Life after love, as a wise woman once said. But when you hit 30, 40, in my 40s, I realized I'm a different dude than I was when I was, you know, 10 years ago. Political beliefs, different. Not all, but some. 10 years before that. Now, listen, if you don't change, that's a whole other problem. But how stupid is it to say, all right, I'm 45 years old. I think so differently than when I was 35 and so differently than when I was 25. But you know what? I'm sure I'm right now. (laughs) No way am I going to think differently when I'm 55. How dumb is that? So if you don't learn from growing that hopefully the growing hasn't stopped, then you're, you know, you're probably listening to the wrong pod. You're probably not smart enough for this pod. But luckily I know that we don't have that kind of audience. Thus, I don't sit and judge, oh, the left's so wrong, the right's so wrong. It's probability in a way. I, it's like, uh, I lean this way, but I see the other side. I'll tell you this, a lot of no-nonsense people are going to be the type that are not racist, but they are skeptical of the PC culture. That's a very common group. And I think we got a lot of listeners like that. And to some degree, I fall into that. What I would say is, that as I've gotten older and gained some wisdom, hopefully, that I see that my assumptions, because that's the thing about assumptions. If everyone's going to tell you there's complexity beyond comprehension, that means you can never really know anything. And the people who are saying that are usually the ones that want to, in the absence of knowing, to guide, to di- but really to dictate. So you think about the left. I think there are opportunists on either side but if they're saying, hey, listen, you are racist, you might not even know. I mean, think about that for a second, is you don't know it. You've never explicitly been racist, but you're racist. You just don't know it. Now, who has the power at that point? Because, I mean, that's a variation, you know, maybe inartfully said right now, but that's the variation 
of a theme right now, which is, and I think there's some truth to the underlying concept that we don't fully understand what affects what, that the causal effects in this existence, in this society, we don't fully understand. I can't pretend to act like, one, it's pretty easy to say I can't be a black, can't, can't understand what a black man's life has been. Because it, being black, I think in many ways, is such a significant part of a life that if you're not that, it's hard to know, right? You can envision if I was felt prejudiced against a bunch, how, but you don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Number two, even if you have been the victim of prejudice, and I would say I haven't, I, you know, it's funny because my grandfather, you know, I'm three-fourths Italian, my grandfather 100%, and... He talked about, and again, he was the type to say, I faced it, I, you know, and it made him not want to be that way to others, but it also made him a little bit like, I got through it, you should get through mm. it. And I think I generated, you know, the, the uh, grew up during the Depression generation was pretty much rubbed some dirt on it, you know? I think that when you're, you know, Italians and Irish fighting in the, tw- you know, in the 30s or whatever, I think it's different. I'm not saying it's not on that spectrum. I'm saying that it's, I do think the part that is obvious but isn't discussed is the idea that when you're black, it's, it's <laughs> I'll make a joke because I don't want things to be too somber, but it's on your, you know, it's, you know, it's on your face. It's on your hands. It's, it's who, you know, it's part of the visual part of it. And th- that means it's harder for you know, let's say that someone in theory was just as prejudiced against Italians as against blacks. Well, what percentage of Italians that they engaged would they know for sure were Italian? Less than a hundred percent. Much less. Yeah, well, yeah, but the races tend to have a specialized skill. Like you see that with anti-Semites, is they have a specialized skill. They they can figure out what the name is. They can figure out the nose angle. I mean, listen, there is certainly. Um, it's almost like a skill they should try to make money from is they figure out who's some, something other than, is that person Catholic? You know, I think the anti-Catholic thing in certain areas of the country is very real. And, you know, I'm Catholic, but again, can they know? I don't know. I don't think so. Especially with me, I have a blue eye. I mean, like I, everyone can't, it's always like Italian, come on. It's like Northern. But the reality is, Steve's like, what are you talking about? I grew up a wasp. <laughs> what, what church did you grow up in? Unitarian. And my best friend in college, I remember he said, I'm Roman Catholic. And I was like, what's that? You know, so, I never, so, so that, that's, I never whoa, heard. That, that's fascinating. You got to be like 19, 20 years old without knowing what a Roman Catholic was. I, I never heard Roman put before Catholic. <laughs> did I you thought there was just Catholic. I didn't know what Roman did, Catholic was. Did you know any Italians? No. <laughs> so if I would have met you, like if you would have met an Italian in college, would you have like told your mom, mom, I finally met one? I mean, like, would it have been like I that? I didn't even think that way. Oh, oh okay, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, because when you never had any minorities except the one serving. That's why I'm looking at you like, Mars, someone, <laughs> someone able to ident- identify someone who's Italian, I would like, I'd be like, I'd fail miserably if you gave me a quiz. Well, because here's the thing you got to realize. Well, two things. One...
And two is the people who are usually the most racist are the ones who feel as if them being kept down is because of that race. So it's usually those who are sharing a ghetto, for example. Back in the day, you know, for the most part, not that there's not poor Italians now, but with the immigrant population, the Italians and the Irish were in the same neighborhoods. So what happened? They didn't like, the boys fought, and the girls and the boys loved, <laughs> right? Because it was taboo. And, you know, I, I, I can't speak to, you know, obviously if you look at, you know, Korean business owners in the black inner cities, obviously a lot of um, animosity, right? Now that's interesting because you got a group who is, in a way, you could say providing a service to the community, but in another way, are they exploiting them? Because, you know, there's condoms and booze, but there's no good nutritious food. Mm. There's all, I mean, these are complex topics. And what I know is this, I know this part, is the amount of people who are explicitly racist in their hearts, I'm not explicitly as in they show it, because you could say they can hide it, but have, where they're saying, I want, you know, well, I don't even want to try to define racism because that, that could be a whole five hour show and I wouldn't be the person, you know, I could counterpunch maybe, but I, you know, let's just call it generically bad will for others that, you know, there's that, oh, hey, so Fred got hurt. And it's like, Fred, oh, the black guy, oh, good. Like, you know, I'm not saying that's the bar because that's, that's an extreme case. There's certainly those people in the world. And, I mean, there's people that do the hurting, even beyond that. I think there's a lot of people that don't fall into that category who don't fully understand some of the things they do or feel what the effect is. And anyone who acts like they understand it, I think it's just as folly. It's just as much folly to say, well, I understand exactly. To know that it could be greater than zero and it's greater than zero, probably to a degree that we should acknowledge it and maybe what? Back to the COVID. Not act like we know for sure, mm -hmm. but understand directionally it's probably the case. And thus, why not mitigate it if it doesn't cost too much? So, for example, if Black Lives Matter says that name means something to us, though in the abstract... To say all lives matter, if you said it with different words, if you said, I believe every life on this planet is worth an effort greater than zero to keep alive, no one would disagree, or not many would disagree, only stone cold racists would disagree with that. But a guy wouldn't get fired over saying that. Now, is it right that, he's, that the Sacramento Kings announcers fired over saying all lives matter? That's... That's a debate that I don't have any special insight into. I don't have any great desire to have. I'll tell you this. If you say anyone that says that is a racist, I think it has to cut both ways in the following way. Those progressive on the extremes, or not even the extremes, let's say, maybe, but those who are truly progressive are going to say, you don't understand 
what that name means. Or you don't understand what the echoes of slavery, though obviously you're going to have the no-nonsense type saying, wait a minute, you know, you were a slave or how many years ago? Yeah. And that resonates with a lot of common sense people like, hey, it sucked, it's over. To act like that's the, that's the only answer, I think someone hasn't thought through too much the idea that there, it makes a lot of sense that you were talking about your grandparents and with pride and the idea of saying, huh, my grandparents were in chains. The idea that that wouldn't somehow affect someone, I think there's a greater chance than zero that that would have an effect. And thus, now the question becomes, for me, I'm not going to act as if someone who says, get over it, is evil. But that person saying, get over it, should give the same consideration to say, hey, you, I might not understand why this upsets you or why it may be affected your ability to rise up, whatever, and have financial success, educational success. I don't, my gut feeling might be, and again, I'm talking as the person here that is the no-nonsense one. My gut feeling is it's bull, but I get it. Maybe, maybe it's not. Now, now, at that point, you've got, now we can debate, is it a 20% chance, an 80% chance, how severe would it be? But you're in the conversation. Open-minded. You're open to the possibility that you may be wrong. The other person may be right, or maybe there's a middle ground. And the key, by me hearing you say that, is yes— but it can't be placating. It can't be, well, if I say I'm open-minded, they can't really lock me. You know, the, <laughs> we were talking about this yesterday. Is Bob Dylan has a line that says, if my thought dreams could be seen, they'd put my head in a guillotine. A lot of people have thoughts they don't want to share because especially in a PC culture, a lot of good people, I think, would, be, would, would get heat and you can be a good person and not be a super thoughtful person or be an intellectually curious person. And I don't know the answer, right? My whole point is I don't know the answer. But I do think it cuts both ways. And I understand why if you're on the left or if you're part of the justice movement and due to a minority, your minor, minority reality, you feel especially passionate about it, right? If, if it's... And especially once you get, you might think, well, the kids get passionate. But when you become a parent, all of a sudden now, the thing that has touched me the most was like the Atlanta mayor, who's a lady, talking about her kids. And then you hmm. think, okay, yeah, when you're in your 40s and you've got 20-year-old kids, let's say, or whatever the math is, in your 50s, they're, you know, whatever the age is, now you're like, I got two you know, African-American boys. Then it's like, hmm, okay, we're all self-interested, but... Now it makes sense, the idea of if, if, if to whatever degree it's systemic, how it's, a, it's not a conversation, it's not an abstraction, it's not, a, it's not a, a coffee house debate, it's life and death. I get how the stakes are higher, and you know what? That means that you've got to try to find a way. Now, I think, and this is... What's interesting, too, I don't know in the long run who was more right, Malcolm X, before, you know, his reevaluation of it, I think, at the end. And I'm no authority on this, and I think Mackenzie's much better read on this, 
or you know, or MLK. Whereas, and again, I'll go very broad here because I'm not an authority, but it seems like with Martin Luther King, it was generally, listen, this is a process, and every step we take is a step. Every step we take closer to the ideal is a step closer, and accepting less than the ideal along the way is the only way to get there as opposed to accepting this, that, or the other is, a, is an indignity that no one should have to accept, and thus, by accepting it, we're allowing the pace to be slow. Does that sound fair? Yeah, I'd say that's an accurate depiction. Uh, I would just say me and my dad, uh, we kind of feel the same way, and he was there, he was in the 60s in the movement, and he, we, don't, we don't particularly care. I mean, this is very controversial. We don't particularly yeah. care about Martin Luther King. Not that he was a bad person, but he was interested in what white people had to think about black people. Martin Luther King, I mean, Malcolm X, that dichotomy was what are black people going to do for themselves? And that's what we, we prefer to focus on and think is a more, more powerful message for our community. Now, I'm guessing, if I was playing devil's advocate here, is a Martin Luther King proponent, let's say one more on that side, would say his, you know, what he accomplished allows you to be in a position to say that safely or relatively safely, whereas that kind of talk back then is what, I mean, you know, was, let's just say the, 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 that there was a lot of risk to it, right? Is it, it, it feels like maybe that we're at the stage now that that, what you're saying now makes more sense than it did then because of the distance that was gained from the Martin Luther King approach. Yes, and that's true. And eight days after he was assassinated, the Civil Rights of Act of 1968 was passed. And a lot of people credit, for him, credit him for that. And the narrative is that because he did this, this, and this, we are now in this place. I think the hundreds of years history before him had just as much to do with that gradual march towards progress. And I'm not saying there's a right answer or right well, approach. Well, for sure. I mean, no one, no. listen... No one person, all a person can be is a man of his times, and, and, but all you can do is maximize the opportunity of your life and of your times. And, I mean, I think it's hard to say Martin Luther King didn't do that, right? Agreed. And I do think you've got a point in regards to, you know, it's like Tony Soprano said on the way back from, uh, they were talking about, it was the one that's considered the worst episode of all time. I think it's a good episode which is about the American Indian and James Caan and the Italians and the Columbus Day and Columbus was a genocidal maniac or whatever. And Tony was screaming at Silvio at the end of the episode. And he said, and it's this and it's that. And he goes, and at one point he was talking about cartoons and imagery and, and mythology. And he said, but Tony, you got it mixed up. He goes, Columbus is a real person. And Tony said, no, he's been so long ago, he might as well have been a character in a movie. Right. And to some degree, who Martin Luther King really was versus what he's become is a very different thing. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. And I would also say that Martin Luther King is... You're what? still wheezing, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, let me, take a, let, me, yeah, let me take a second. But that, but that mythology is not ours. It's, it's but, it's a, but you would make the case it's a very useful mythology. 
Yes, if you want to get a day off in Monday. Well, I, I mean, mean a day off in January. No, no, I we don't have those days off, by the way. First <laughs> true, off, so true, there's true. no use for that. <laughs> yeah, listen, one, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, that level of politics is something I don't take part in. But it's funny too. I'm usually just on the other side of anyone. Meaning, I think both parties have so much crap in them. And my wife always says. When I moved to Vegas, my brother-in-law at the time, so no longer were that, you know, my sister and him split up after like 20 years, but, you know, he was around a long time. And he was a, uh, a Ted Cruz type Republican, like the sanctimony. I mean, to me, I, you know, I like that Ted Cruz actually has become such a toady that, that like, once Trump vanquished him, he's like, he just keeps his head down. And he says, you know, in his mind, he's thinking, how many days till this guy's gone? But he, he understands that in today's Republican Party, if you're anti-Trump, you're not, you know, you're not going to get elected to anything. So, <laughs> but <laughs> the thing people don't talk about is if you actually rewatch or think back to the 2016 Republican uh, convention, is Ted Cruz said, vote your conscience, which is a code for, like, you don't have to vote for Trump. And, like, in hindsight, I mean, I, you know, in hindsight, that's such a, I mean, when's the last, could you imagine, like, at a Democratic or Democrat, however you want to say it, convention, the idea of, like, a Bernie, like, Bernie supposedly didn't give all of his resources to Hillary and they still mm. blame him. And, it, and the idea versus Cruz saying what he said, I'm not, again, I, I think if you take the slot to speak, you're not supposed to try to do a swerve. I mean, this isn't a movie. So I'm sure Trump has, uh, knowing Trump, it, he'll get his revenge at some <laughs> point. But it's like, again, in The Sopranos, when uh, Christopher's dad, did you see that episode yet? No, not yet. Yeah. The... Um, yeah, it's yeah. Johnny Sack said the same story. Is these business guys, the real business guys, they can hate somebody, but if they're still making, if they still got a use, they're fine. The day they don't have a use, they're not fine. But to me, with my ex-brother-in-law, I would come back from Vegas and I would say, "But what about this? What about this?" And he would look at me, and goes. "What are you a liberal now? You live in that in Vegas? Like Vegas <laughs> was like Sodom and Gomorrah or whatever." And then with the, you know, the lefties, I, I, you know, I bring out the, you know, I, I'm libertarian, so I'm pretty much in between, right? Socially, I think if you don't hurt someone, you should do what you want. And financially, I think that if you earn it, you should keep as much as possible. And when I say as much as possible, I mean as much as allow society to collectively do what society should do. That debate of what society should do is, an, is a fair one, right? But I know that it shouldn't be a nanny state. I know that it's human nature. If there's no, any, you can tell me what I don't know. And maybe you're right. But what I know is if you got the same life if you get out of bed or if you don't, at 5.30 in the morning, you're not getting out of bed. Or let's just say, you're not getting out of bed as much as you would otherwise. Mm-hmm. And just collectively, anyone who denies that 
Now you're in fairy tale land. So you know, back when it was at Metropolitan Life, they we looked at long-term disability insurance, and it was like absolutely horrific to give anything close to a hundred percent because well, if someone could get eighty percent, that sounds like you saying is paying a bookie or something. But I, I get they don't want to pay it, but you're talking about the outcomes later. If someone can get eighty percent of their paycheck being disabled, all of a sudden they're like they're they'd rather have that than work most of the time. So you, oh, yeah, yeah. So you I mean you can't make it go beyond. Well, first off, if you, first off, hold on. It's not the insurance company's job to decide if another person's working or not. It's to pay on a freaking policy that they're supposed to pay on. Yeah, but it's the, well, yeah, but, but it's no, the yeah, employer's but. job to pick a policy for their employees that does not um, overly <laughs> encourage disability claims. I, I understand that. And, and obviously, to whatever degree that they're open to disability claims that would pay off big, you're going to charge the, the the actuaries would charge them accordingly. Right. But that's not what was happening here. You were somehow equivocating, screwing someone over on getting the right percentage because it's going to be better for them. I mean, do you do you realize what this guy? How, that is a next level of. I'm screwing you over for your own good. You just don't know it yet, and you actually bought into that. So maybe if you stiff a bookie, you can say, hey, this will t- make sure that you're up for the uh, late games on January 1st. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> my politics are hard to figure. What is interesting is I'm not saying that McKenzie's are cliched or you know stereotypical of the left or whatever, because I will say this, talking to him in personal life, He's got a very uh, eclectic de- positions, and to me, anyone who's party line either way is not thinking about it a lot, and I like that. I will say that sounded—I don't want to say militant, but I mean that sounded pretty hardcore. So, huh? The same conversation happened in the movie Barbershop, and. Cedric so what, are, you quote, are you quoting a movie? No, no. Just the idea. This is a very common, you know, argument in black community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How important? How good? How much should we admire, praise Martin Luther King? Uh, me and my dad are just on one side of that spectrum. Yeah, no, I understand. But I guess that. Let me ask you this question because this is a topic that uh, I try to be careful. I mean, to me, and, and the reason being that I mean, I've set up my life when no one can tell me, no one can make a decision that's going to affect my life in any real way. Uh, That, to me, is the greatest thing I've got, and I've worked hard for it. Uh, I mean, Fox is a nice show. I love the boss, I mean, best bosses I could imagine. I've never had a, I've never had a, I mean, I I don't have a boss. In fact, I made sure that they contracted the company. I don't work for anyone, but I never have. And I know that sounds bold, that sounds egotistic, but in a way, it's, I think ego is good. If you work hard for something, you should appreciate it, and I do. But I have no desire to offend people for no reason, right? Mm-hmm. If I tell you that if you think there should be a nanny state, we're just going to disagree. That means you don't like me anymore? Then I don't know how you liked me before, to be honest, because <laughs> I'm about you know, self-reliance, but I'm also about being realistic about it, because when you're healthy and smart, it's easy to be self-reliant. It is. Get to think about if you felt like, you know, if you're smart and healthy, think about how you feel when you have the flu. I mean the bad flu. And imagine you felt like that all the time. 
Whoa. Now talk about self-reliance. Now talk, you know, and I get it. If we don't have the money, if we don't, if it's about us starving or that person starving, that person's going to have to starve. But if we got the money, helping those people, to me, feels righteous. Now, where that line is, I don't know. But I know it's not easy answers. To quote Bunny, I don't know what the answer is. I know it can't be a lie. Good character. Season three, Hamsterdam. But here's the question, Mackenzie, that I've had recently in my mind. When is the time in the history of this planet in which a group who had the power gave that power or relinquished that power to their own disinterest, or not disinterest, but lack of interest, to the opposite of their interests. Meaning, if I've got a thousand of something and you've got zero, there's been times that the, and when I say I, that's personal. So let's say if a group has a thousand and the other group has zero, there's been times that maybe they give a hundred to the other group. Now, there hasn't been many of those times, first off. Generally, pre- United States, pre, you know, I mean, I'm not sure. Usually the dominant powers just dominate until they couldn't dominate anymore. It wasn't a lot of like, consideration of others. It was just, we're going to enslave you. Because there was such scarcity that, that life was, you know, that's how they survived. I don't think everyone from the past is evil. I don't. But I've never seen, I don't think, a society give 600 to the other. And then after doing it, the other has the power. Because let's represent these units as power units. Now, do you know with your Ivy League education, I mean, I'm from a s- small college in the Midwest. Well, do you know of a time that a, pow- that a group relinquished power to the degree to, to, to actually sway who had the power? Never. I can't think of a time. I don't think very close, right? And I mean, I'm not, I mean, I've always been a fan of history. I'm no historian. Can you think of many times before the U.S. and before, let's say, even 1900, in which anything was really given by any group to any other group? No, it's a modern luxury to try to plan for fairness rather than survival. And Moses, uh, he had to leave. He tried to talk to the Pharaoh, but he, he eventually he had to leave. Yes, and, and then he threw the stick down. I saw that movie. Right? <laughs> the bush burned. <laughs> I tell you, that old Ten Commandments movie... That was a tradition, man. I mean, you probably wasn't for you. Was that like subversive or something? Because it was Roman cat or the the. I don't didn't even... make the Unitarian movie. Ah. <laughs> You're like what Wonder Bread through and through, man. Uh, now, did you, that's an interesting question. Was there Wonder Bread at the house? Yeah, in fact, we went to a Wonder Bread factory in Dayton, Ohio, for a field trip in second grade. So, like, Wonder Bread was something you aspired to. <laughs> yeah, we were brainwashed from an early age. And that's hilarious. If it wasn't true, it should have been true. It should have been. <laughs> Dude, you are so good. You are perfect for this. <laughs> I'm just answering the questions. That's my point. Now, did you ever have, like, good Italian bread with the sesame seeds on it? Like, the, the big loaf carried over the str- None of that. None. Balsamic, olive oh. oil. <laughs> I don't think I ate olive oil until I was 25. <laughs> did, you, <laughs> did you ever watch Sex in the City? 
Yeah, a couple times. Charlotte was your dream girl, right? She's the she's the brunette, right? Yeah. The cute brunette. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, ab- <laughs> absolutely. You know, Charlotte would have looked her nose down at you, though. Charlotte, Marianne, you know. <laughs> you know what's funny? Where I grew up was so ethnic, but in such a, t- you know, Polish, Irish, Italian. I don't think I knew a wasp. Wow. Like, I, like it's so weird that it was like... I mean, maybe I don't even know quite. There were these uppity types. That, yeah, maybe. Was there like a Presbyterian church? Yeah, but we we looked our nose down at them. <laughs> like they're not Italian. What the hell? I'm serious. That's how I felt. I was in such a bubble. The fight was the you know the, the Polish people. We look you know it was like ah Polish. Come on. And then the Irish were trying to be Italian. I mean. That's how it was. I'm not saying it was right. I'm just saying what. I mean, I think it was right. Oh, wait. So, (laughs) my question, though, is how do you see, like, you don't ever think, let's say, that the black community is going to have enough, let's say, military power to take over the U.S. government, right? No. So, not that you would try. I'm not saying, you know, oh, yeah, you try. So, isn't then, and there might be a time down the road where, you know, hey, we're, the U.S. is going to, or in fact, I, I don't think might, I think it's inevitable, will be a majority-minority country. But it's not as if those minorities are going to vote as a block. So it's going to have to be in any foreseeable future a situation that those in power say, you know something, fairness, and that was a good word, fairness dictates that we do X. And you know what, you know, whatever that is. And you know what? That will be an amazing, great thing when they do that, because history says that's a rare thing. But it will likely be less than what's deserved, because it's going to be from the perspective of the giver. So I don't understand how anything other than if I'm in a position of power, I can understand if I'm buying peace of mind or I'm buying a sense of righteousness. That's a fact. I don't believe in a lot of. You know, we talked about Atlas Shrugged is there's a book called The Virtuous Selfishness. And the theory is that Mother Teresa, who would be the example, let's say, a, a Catholic, by the way. Thank would, you. Would be the, an example of a Roman Catholic. Would be an example of a selfish person. It's like, what? It's like, well, what made Mother Teresa the most happy? It was like, well, serving Calcutta. And it's like, okay. So she did what was best for her. So if you really think about it, we all do what's best for us. It's just sometimes those things are overtly self-involved and other times they're not. But, Fez, what would be better for you, being good to your boy or being bad to your boy? Being good to my boy. So are you being selfish or are you being altruistic? You're being selfish. You're doing what's best for you. Well, I'm doing the fact it's good for him is incidental. In that perspective, yes. Well, from the perspective of the truth, yes. Yes. So, in general, I think it makes sense that if you have an indulgence, if you can indulge in saying, we've got enough as the group in power, we're going to, for fairness sake, we're going to give some without having to get it, you know, taken from our claws, you know, I think that that is human nature in a good way, right? Because if you're so involved just about yourself, you're not going to have those feelings. You're not going to care what their plight. 
But I don't see any scenario other than it's some transaction in which fairness is masquerading. You know, the words about fairness are really self-interest that is about feeling good about yourself or feeling unburdened by the sins of the past or whatever. But it's going to be a transaction. Everything right. is, right? Yep. So the, the, the views of intensely, like, this is wrong. I mean, like, the ultimate right and wrong of it all has been incidental for thousands of years. And it's been something not even worthy of comment in a way. Like, no one in the Roman Empire was thinking about right and wrong. And I'm not saying that is any ideal. It's just saying it's human nature. And I guess the question is, even though any thinking person, I think, would say, you know, enslaving a, a group of people is wrong, it's not what's going to drive this, especially when there's no one alive today. And, and, and that's what gets complicated, because I really think there's a lot of like, good people they're going to say, I got nothing to do with slavery. Right? I, wasn't, you know, I wasn't even in this country where my ancestors weren't. Or let's say it's an immigrant now. Mm-hmm. Right? So if it's some Asian immigrant, let's use that as the cliche because often they'll come here, get super educated, and do very well. Indians too. And the country's stronger for it in those regards for sure. I mean, if you look at Silicon Valley, you look at the founders— Look at the number of immigrants, no doubt about it. Now, to equivocate that with every immigrant, not that, not that now the debates get interesting. The debates get interesting when you stop the BS, you stop the indignation. Right. And I think, I, and usually the debates are interesting to me when I can see both sides, because otherwise it's not really a good debate. So, my question to you to end the political section if that. If you agree with my premises and if you don't, tell me why not. But if you do, then wouldn't you say that anything about some ultimate right and wrong really won't have much to do with the way this resolves itself? No. I, I mean, yes, I agree with you. It, it's not going to be about right or wrong. It's going to be about interest and your self-interest. And this is the thing. Not too many Americans own slaves, but a lot of Americans believe— Well, not, no Americans born— or True. alive today. True, but this is this is the trend that's continued. But what they were convincing of the people that weren't rich enough to afford slaves, that if they kept black people down, if they viewed them as lower, they would always be at least higher than them. No, no, hold on a second. Is this during what era are we talking about? Like through today? Uh, yeah, th- through today I think that r- remains true, where poor white people often think, well, so at least McK- I'm better McKenzie, than the McKenzie, poor black people. Mackenzie, first I'll take a breath. And let's have a conversation. Sure. All right. But I'm just saying is, you know, to me, this is a a rare thing that I would, you know, to me, there might be a certain group of people that are going to listen to McKenzie and say, oh, I don't like that at all. Now, if they are going to say, and, you know, I'm mad at RJ because he would even have someone with that perspective, then, you know, the show's not for you either. Now, what I get is when the host of a show has strong political beliefs, that can I get that meaning that the the listeners don't want to hear that. If I I promise you, if there's a host that I like, it's talking too much about Paul. Doesn't even matter. I don't I don't hate the person for having the feeling. I just don't want to hear it. I want to hear your opinion all the time. How right you are. You know, make me some money, right? But <laughs> which you have done. Well, yeah. But what I'm saying is, especially that, over the last twelve <laughs> months, to I mean, excess. To me, the you know, 
I get that. I, 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 the idea that you're a host and you should be indulging every feeling you have got to be sh- – ah, come on. That's BS. That said, my job, I want to hear ideas. I like hearing different ideas. That said, you can't be wheezing. All right. To whatever degree you got to settle down not to wheeze. That's what you need to do. Now, please continue. Thank you. (laughs) So my point is, it's in interest of everyone to have a society with less crime, less poverty, more jobs. I think the idea that if we keep black people down, we will, you know, by extension, be better has kept not only black people down, but a lot of different kinds of people down. I think if we all look at our self-interest and don't accept the BS that classes exist or races exist and we need to protect what's ours, if you get whoa, through whoa, that and whoa, think of th- everyone whoa, the same. Whoa. You think it's BS that races exist? Oh, I, I actually do. I mean, being a mulatto, I, I have a unique perspective on that. Um, okay, but I guess the theory is unless someone thinks there's some truth to what's that called, eugenics or whatever, right. is... It really doesn't matter if exactly. they exist or not, right? It's yeah. the perception. There's social constructions that are real that have to be dealt with because they and, are and, negatively And I'm not saying I, I – listen, biology is – I'm not a biologist, right? So yeah. I don't know the answer. But I'm saying I think for this conversation it doesn't – like you said, it, either way, there's the – a minimum, there's the perception. Yes. And I think if people you know, kind of shed the baggage of – race and what, what am I and what, what is this other person? I think we can all forge ahead together. Yeah, but do you better. not? But so a lot of people scientifically would say that in our, you know, evolutionary biology mm-hmm. is the idea of you have something to fear from the unfamiliar. Yes. Uh, do you believe that that doesn't exist? I think that's a very real biological uh, fact. I don't think... People should have that fear. I think people would, do, but, but, would serve but, themselves better. But things better like biological facts are not about shoulda, woulda, coulda. It's about is, right? I just think, listen, I think it's human nature. I mean, I'll give you a good example. Why do we think it is that, well, let's say this. I don't, because uh, I really, I mean, it's, I can think of 80% I'm right about something, but when the stakes are high, I don't want to say it like I know it. So let me say it like this. I find it interesting the percentage of white men that will have, or, or who not would, but have a baby with a black woman. It's a, from what I can gather, it's a small percentage relative to a lot of other percentages. And you would think, huh, I wonder why that is. Is that because they find black women unattractive? Which, if a group has a certain, you know, Characteristic. Hey, I like French women. I like English women. It makes sense when it comes to attraction. That's something also that's buried in there somewhere. Like Fez, why you love red shoes and high heels? I don't know. Could be something from your past. (laughs) Black shoes with red on the bottom. Oh my gosh, I didn't even know what he's talking about. But what I'll say is that the idea, and I'm not a father, and I don't plan to be, so I'm not an authority on this, but. It seems to me the desire to have your boy, let's say you have a son, look like you is part of the whole evolutionary perpetuation of the species. And when you have, and again, I think that's probably more male. It's more, 
The man, I don't hear a lot of women that are saying, I want a son no matter what, or I want a daughter no matter what. They're more evolved, it seems like, in that regard, where a man often wants a boy, right? At least one. Right. And you hear all the time, all the time, that, you know, had three kids, all three girls, they said, I want to try one more time. That's a very common thing. And I'm not, again, not about judging it. It strikes me that there's some things in us we don't even fully understand. But if you look at the world, they play themselves out again and again and again. And I'm always skeptical when the higher brain is supposed to trump that. It's supposed to say, yes, we've got this evolutionary biology, but... Well, didn't you just say more evolved? Isn't that the idea that we It's the goal. That? I think the expectations of that should be modest. I think that's pretty fair. And generally saying we're not going to be more... Com or at least... Because to me, it, it's not mutually exclusive to say that people who grow up with a certain culture are going to be comfortable in that culture and they should be extremely to the max permissive to other cultures and even more they should be open to enjoy learning about and experiencing other cultures because it enriches their lives. To me, that's a good thing for that person. You know, if we say Archie Bunker is the stereotypical... You know, Archie Bunker was not presented... He's a character, right? He was not presented as a bad man. No, not at all. He was presented as a good man that had a lot of things high not good. Right? And that was what made it interesting. If he was perfect, it wouldn't have been interesting. If he was a bad man, it wouldn't have been interesting. But, you know, same thing with Tony Soprano. These, these Arch... Or uh, these anti-heroes are usually good people underneath. Usually. After what he did to Christopher, I, I really, I, I watched that. I don't know if I can. And I, I was getting different after that. I was getting, listen, he was self-interested. True. And it, 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 the funny thing is, who did he do the most, who did he go out of his way for the most on the show? over the Christopher Montesanti. And it's usually, yeah, it's usually that, right? So. You're going to do the most, and then at the end, you're going to be self-interested. And if you think you'd be on a desert island with someone, and one of you had to go, and you'd say, I'll go, meaning go to the great beyond, well, whoever you're on that island with, you better appreciate in this hypothetical, that's a small group, my man. Because if most people are honest, I, I, I would be a great question. What percentage? If I could ask God something, this would be one of them. Who wins the Super Bowl in you know, is can I have one of those almanacs? <laughs> is what percentage of married people would give their life for the life of their, their partner, of their spouse? Tell you this, if it was over, that's an interesting question. Let's go around the horn. This isn't about what you would do. What do you think the percentage is? Well, and with Fez, because I have a theory on what his is gonna be. Matt. Half, my reason is that half the marriages in this country fail. So you think, what? but I'm saying of all the mar <laughs> so you're saying ha half the marriages fail, so that's half, so you think the threshold that you'd give your life to someone and divorce is the same threshold if it's a no? I do, without thinking about it deeply, yes. Boy, guys, in case you thought I hired dumb people, he is from, he did get a graduate degree from Columbia. So literally, 
That's insane. Thank you, goodness Hollywood uh, said that uh, and not me, I because mean, RJ would have sent me home. Uh, I mean, that's insane. <laughs> he was like, you, you know, don't even, your mic's off, come back uh, Monday, Fezzik, fact, if that was my answer. In fact, your mic is off the rest of the show, man. All right. Mackenzie. Wait, I'm not, your mic's off somehow, too. I think he, oh, okay. I think 10%. And more if there was ah. a, a child that the that they thought the other person would be better at taking oh, care yeah, of. That's actually a smart comment. That I hadn't thought of that. All right, Fez. 7%. Oh, my God. Well, now, because Fez knows himself so well. So how would you tell your wife? <laughs> <laughs> <Turn it off. laughs> I, don't, I don't want to go into details here, but I do think Mackenzie's comment was very sage about... You know, if, if if you recognize, yeah, yeah. because because I, I personally like I, I can't imagine anyone wouldn't give the life for their children. I can't even well, imagine first that. All, that's that's not true. But okay, I mean, some people won't even give a couple hours. They're they gone. Give, they won't give a kidney. <laughs> I remember screaming at someone in a poker room. He said, "Oh, I guess if my child so needed a kidney, I would give it to him." I'm like. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you that you would think you have the right to tell someone else what they should I think I just thought about? it was such a stupid thing to say. I know. That's what everyone that tries to tell people what to do thinks that they were people right. People give kidneys to strangers. Who's that? It happens. <laughs> that's exactly what OJ said. It happens. All right. I think Mackenzie's number's about right, 10%. But I'll tell you this. I think that the moment that it happened... About half them would regret it. <laughs> so, so I think that about 5% truly in their heart would go the whole way. If there was like seven steps and each one you could turn back from, you know, somehow where there was like, you know, like the guy jumps from the building is what's he thinking bef- between, you know, like what percentage of people would jump off a bridge or a building to kill themselves? What percentage Aww. regret it before they're dead in those like three seconds? I think about half probably regret it, yeah. and I think about half would regret that decision. So I think it was five percent of the pure left. And then you got to wonder, are they defective? Like, is that love, or is that some? Because isn't the strongest human urge supposed to be survival? It's not survival of your partner. The fact that this is an interesting conversation, I think, is because as humans. Self-interest is, I think we all accept, so such a driver. And in general, when one group has the power due to numbers or whatever it's due to, and obviously it's about numbers, I think, in many ways, mostly in the history of the world, right? Sometimes it was, like, well, this one group is so efficient with their fighting they can win, but okay. I don't know if we can overly blame those who are seemingly militant now because when you when you have had a unfair when unfairness has been such a part of your life when you feel like you have a chance to really speak the truth that you feel you're probably not going to temper that. Or let's say a lot of people are going to let it go. I've had this on my mind kind of thing. It just feels like if the stakes really are as high as they, they feel, life and death, freedom, then that's the time you've got to most temper yourself and do what is going to max the chance of the outcome you want. Right. 
And I totally get both, you know, the desire to finally, you know, if the st- it's bad. That's the irony of it all. When the stakes are the highest is when some people say is when any compromise is wrong. But I think it's the, and again, you could say it's easy because the stakes aren't that high for me. But I think when the stakes are the highest, you know, I'll tell you this, it's a small thing. And I'm lucky in a way, in a way that, you know, both my parents, uh, you know, were around and still alive. But, you know, my grandparents on my mom's side were like, you know, my grandfather was more of a father in a way, and my grandmother was as much of a mother. And I was lucky, to have, you know, to have two mothers like that in a way. But when my grandmother, and it's been 20 years now, got pancreatic cancer, there was, you know, again, I guess in hindsight, it was kind of foolish to think there was any way that it was going to work out well, because that's such a tough cancer. But, you know, there was times where I was working to get her in this or that program, and you know, this, to me, it was life and death stakes in a very specific, singular sense, but yes. And usually when I deal with bureaucracy, my tolerance isn't high. I start, you know, getting, you know, getting a raised voice. I didn't raise my voice once during this because to me, the stakes were that high. Now, I also get that to do that once for a short period of time is easier than to live a life like that. Some people might be saying, geez, RJ, a lot of, a lot of conditions. And it's like, yeah, these are complicated questions. And we could not talk about them at all, but I'm not going to talk about them too simplistically because, once again, I think they deserve the complexity. And I will say, finally, that the simplicity they're presented on TV where there's the players and it's like, or that perspective and it's like, I wonder if they should play and would Kaepernick should even accept a job. I'm not saying all, I don't I'm not saying that I know all that's wrong, but I know for sure all that isn't certainly right. And the fact that there's no counterpoints and no one feels like they can even like you know, I guess the ultimate greeny moment. If you want to wonder why greeny is great in some ways and falls short in others, and greeny's been personally fine or good to me. Not, I don't know Greeny all that well, but, you know, 10 times he could have done something good for me. He's done them. So I like him. But, and when I say good, I mean, you know, hey, jump on this show with me or, you know, retweet me. It's like very simple. But today, literally, uh, what's his name? Foxworth? Is that his name? Yes. All right. Foxworth was talking about, you know, he thinks it'd be super valid and maybe appropriate for the NBA players just not to play this season. And again, strong statement. It's getting to the edge of, I, you know, I think the ones that are on, even on TV. I don't know how you go stronger, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could, but it'd be very strong. And Greeny's response was, huh, huh interesting. RC to Ryan <laughs> Clark, 30 seconds. <laughs> and, and then it's like Greeny's the best traffic cop in the history of the world where he's going to get you in and out of that segment he's going to get you between questions and he's not going to I don't he seems like a really smart guy to be honest I mean I listen I can tell how smart or not how smart but within ranges Greeny's a smart dude other than his Northwestern degree well again he's probably one of the smarter guys from Northwestern let's say that <laughs> but the reality is 
Greeny doesn't show that side. Some guys, they want to show every side of that. Like if I have anything to say that's halfway smart, they're going to say it. I think, to be honest, that's something I got to grow on. I think I got a lot of smart things to say, but I don't have to say them all. And it's not just long diatribe. It's just, in general, what is the moment about in that segment? And that's radio different than podcast. But, boy, it's not, hey, 30 seconds, go. And maybe that's a sign the shows like that aren't meant for this kind of conversation. But if they're having them and they're one-sided, I don't think it's doing anyone any service because society's not going to agree with the extreme stuff. And society has to agree. It's just, it, it is a hegemony. It is majority rule. And closing thoughts, McKenzie. I 100% agree, and I think the majority has to feel that if one race or anybody, isn't that an old expression? If anybody is oppressed, then I'm oppressed. I think that's that's, well, that's what an I think old that's an old should. expression, but it's nothing the world's ever lived by. No, and I think a lot of the extremists, obviously, the rioting is counterproductive, and I think people have now, to think you about, do realize a vast majority of the people. See, this is the complexity that I find interesting in your positions. I think that there's. You know, I'm just guessing here, but if it's one to, let's say one to a hundred, and it's hundreds the most liberal, you know, most, uh, you know, whatever progressive, however you want to say it, fringe, is no. Actually, let's reverse that because I want if it's a bigger number, I want it to be bigger the fit. So let's say zero. How would we do that? Because I well, let me say it like this. I think. I think upwards of half the well, let's say if half the people are just generally for you know about social justice, but explicitly, whereas they're not against it, but they're not for it. I think I, you know, and, and I actually found some lingo that Jason Williams, as I list, I've been trying to really listen to people on this, and that Jason Williams is that Jay Williams they call him from Duke. Yeah, Jay Williams. Yeah, he's got some good smart comments. Like of all the people I've heard, they were the, been the smartest. I thought to me. But that means I agree with them, so it's one of those. But it's also something I like the most is when I don't initially agree with someone, then they make me think it as I think it through that they're right. And then it's like, okay, that, they've just made me smarter, I think. Like, to me, that's the value. But um, what he said was the following. He was saying, all right, there's racist, and then there's – or no, I'm sorry, there's racism – I actually wrote this down. And then there's, and, and, you know, actually, it's better even this way. He, there's people who are against racism, which to me is a vast majority. Mm-hmm. And then there's people that are pro-justice. And that's a, a verb, an action. I think, there's a lot, I think there's a lot less people who are pro-justice. Because that takes effort. That means I'm going to go volunteer. I'm going to give something up. I always want to hear what you're giving up. If you believe in something, I want to hear what you're sacrificing for it. And I think that a lot of people are against racism. And I think that's a good thing. And I think there's a lot less that are pro-justice. And to me, you look at Drew Brees and all the indignation that came from his comments... I don't think anyone thought he wasn't against racism. Right. They were saying he wasn't enough 
pro-justice because mm. if he was, he would have understood why he, what he said was wrong. And I'm not saying you shouldn't set the bar to that, but boy, the fact we don't have a language for that, the fact that in general people reacted to Drew Brees about the same as if he had said, you know, I won't even try to guess what would be like super incendiary that was not so evil sounding. But let's say that the N-word's involved, whatever, and okay, you would say, wow, that one, he's, that dude's certainly not against racism. That's a very different thing than saying, oh, he hasn't made the pro, meaning you make the, you know, willing to, and maybe the better way to say it is sacrifice for justice. Yeah. I think some people would sacrifice to stop. A lot of people would, would, would say, I have a preference against racism. Most people would say that and be true in their hearts. If you say, are you willing to sacrifice for justice? That's a smaller group. And if people believe anyone who doesn't, isn't willing to sacrifice for justice are bad, that's fine to believe it. But I think that about half the people, maybe less, would sacrifice for justice. And I think far more than 90% are against racism. So that, that, those people in the, that are no, you know, not sacrificing for justice but against racism, you got to win them. If you win them... You got the majority, I think. 100% agree. And to blur the lines between those two different, so, very different populations really sets us back, I think. Now, would you say that th the last two weeks, that that's been the case almost without exclusion? That, that distinction, and the fact that I'm 14 days in and I'm just hearing the words that make sense to me, I mean, how is that in any way, and I'm saying this not as if you're supposed to answer for it, but rather... I'm not watching everything. I'm not listening to everything. Has anyone, who else has been trying to make this distinction? And when I say who else, not who else other than me, but I'm saying, where do you hear this conversation? Only in private conversations with people like my sister. I don't think the media, maybe we're the first, have the appropriate patience and discipline well, there's, and listen, there's a lot, view. Yeah, there's a lot of political podcasts that are yeah, very thoughtful, you know, that, that I'm not, I don't listen to either necessarily, but it seems like that, and again, just because this dude was in the uh, um, news because of Biden, but the dude, I don't even know, Char isn't it Charlemagne the God or something? That's is exactly it? right. All right. Is, <laughs> it seems like I just heard him on a couple shows since, and I mean, he seems like a thought, you know, I'm not saying I agree, with it, but he's thinking about this stuff, it seems like. Yeah, 100%. He's the kind of guy that's not party line, not I'm black, this is what I say, I'm liberal, this is what I say. I really respect Charlemagne. Yeah, so... To me, this is such a, if you're an intellectual person, it's such an interesting chance to really think this stuff through. But you know what? If you say the wrong word and all of a sudden you're evil, you're canceled, I don't know how every conversation I've ever had that you knew every word was going to be right coming out meant you were sure of what you were saying and you were not open to anything else. If you're ever open to the other side, you can explain your doubts and your questions imperfectly and the I, I get that in some ways you shouldn't give speeches that are but you know to me if drew Brees got a tattoo on his arm that was saying you know his initial statement versus he was asked a question now you could say well he should go back you know it goes back to 2017 he should have been thinking this through yeah so you're saying he is un he hasn't sacrificed enough for justice i'll accept that that that's fair to call you but to somehow 
the reaction to Drew Brees, if you didn't know what he did, and you said, yeah, he, he was, uh, he, there was some right, racist diatribe, he got caught on tape, would the reaction have been much different? No. To me, if that's the case, that's a failure. There's got to be degrees to this. Agreed. Yep. But I also see, I mean, I do see that if it's life and death, you don't want to hear that. But I think it's when you need it the most. All right. RJ, speaking of which, there are two different worlds that are currently going on. You've got the UFC that has managed to come up with not only several fight cards, but they've got a cage on a beach in Abu Dhabi, and they're going to have a fight island. And then you've got Major League Baseball, which still can't get it together, although Rob Manfred, their commissioner, said earlier today that he guaranteed there would be some sort of a season. Well, let's start with the baseball, because I think what's not being said as clearly is the following. Because the NFL or MLB owners are locked in effectively to the deal they made in March. And to recap that deal, it was saying, okay, if there's less than 162 games, whatever percentage of games we play, that's the percentage of the contract you're going to get. Fez, you have a term you like? Pro rata. Pro rata. Right? It's, per, it, it, it's a ratio. So you play half the games, you get half your money. Later, owner said, huh, we didn't think that went all the way through. Because if there's not fans in the stands, we're not going to make as much per game as we typically would. Why should the players make as much per game? That's the heart of the dispute. Players have every right to say, hey, 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 we made the deal's a deal. Deal's a deal. I think that's a fair point. Because the owners have the upside, they should have the downside. That's my belief as an owner myself of a small business is the idea that you get the upside, but you got to take the downside. Now, if you want to spread around the downside, then spread around the upside. And that's what the NFL does. When you do a rev share, Mm -hmm. you're spreading around both. And that's why there seems to be a clear partnership with the NBA and the players, the NFL and the players, because it's rev share. And you make more money as a league. The players and the owners, everyone makes more money. And it's you know pretty much down the middle. So yeah. it all makes sense. Anything that hurts you hurts me. And that's good, because if it helps me, it helps you. Baseball, no. So the owners want extra, then you pay extra when you lose, when things don't go well. Okay, but here's what we know. That deal was signed, and the owners... Don't want games now. They are going to lose. Unless the players took a significant concession per game, owners are losing per game. So the owners are thinking, huh, each game is a loss, but we got to keep the business open. If somehow we close it and lose another World Series, it could affect our value of our uh, teams by 30%, 20%. Future earnings, losing fans, etc. And I think big time. I think yeah. big time. So to me, right now, MLB's saying each game they play would lose about $640,000. Now, to me, let's assume that number's about half that because they're going to cook mm-hmm. the books. That still means they want to play the least number of games. So baseball has the right to say, we're going to play X games. And based on the March agreement, players are going to have to go along with it. They want X to be as small as possible if they're going to lose per game, but they still want to get to the postseason. So, Jonas, I'm hearing, what, like 48 or something? Yeah, 48 games is the one that they agreed upon. Uh, so that was so at the very – the worst-case scenario, if we do have a season, it would be just under 50 games. Now, 
the only way we wouldn't have a season is if the player said, we're not going to honor this deal, right? Or the owner said, you know, we're not going to honor the deal. Because it seems like that the idea of the 48, I would make the following case. That is extremely likely, meaning there's probably a 10% chance, 20% chance they don't play at all because one of the sides thinks it's so bad they're just going to say, take me to court kind of thing. But in general, I think it's either 48 games or more is the real viable options here. And maybe that's why we're not seeing any sense of urgency. Because the owners are thinking, well, there's a ticking clock. Every day that goes by, there's less games we can play. But if the players aren't going to take a concession, we don't want to play a lot of games. So they, they drag this out, the owners. It makes the players look bad, in theory. And then in the end, they say, okay, we're going to play, we'll play. And then they got time for 48. Uh, it, it's good strategy, but it feels like it's really like telling the fans, we just don't care. Does anyone see it any other way in regards to we very likely are going to have a season? It's going to be the minimum because the owners are losing per game, but they want to have a season because there's a bigger loss if they don't. And the players are saying, hey, owners are going to have to eat this anyway. Let's force them to eat it. And neither are saying, we'll take a little pain now for the good of the game. I don't think it's extremely likely we're going to have a season, RJ, and here's why. I agree with everything you've said, but when we hit that point where the owners say, all right, we're going to go to a 48-game season that's contractually um, in accordance with our March agreement, we're going to play ball. The player, the individual players still have an opt-out. They don't have to play. If enough of those players, let's say, what do you do if a fourth of the league but says what, they won't what, play? What would be the motivation of those players? They Because they got the deal they wanted. They'd be getting 30 cents on the dollar in terms well, of what they expect but, but, to make. But hold on. Pro rata, they'd be getting the same amount, right? <laughs> yes. Per game. Yes. And if anything, they need that money more. I mean, one of the whole kind of secrets of these strikes and lockouts is the players don't have, as Avon said in The Wire, we want to see who's got a bigger war chest. Well, the owners usually have the bigger war chest. Yeah, that's a great point. And some, a lot of the players are saying, hey, maybe we're just not going to play at all. Are they bluffing? And come August 1st, will they be on the field? But I think we're hearing the least of that when it comes to baseball, wouldn't you say? Of players like on background or whatever saying, oh, we might not want to play. I'm hearing that in the NBA more than No, baseball. I'm hearing in baseball. What, what, what do you think, Jonas? Uh, I think that I've heard a lot of players come out and be very doubtful. They don't want to say, you know, we're not going to play a season. But I've heard players that are very skeptical, uh, skeptical about anything getting done. And then you've had former players that are kind of split. You've got former players who have argued with current players on Twitter saying, listen, this is bad look for the game. We should have a product on the field. This is an opportunity here. And then you've had other ones that have been defensive of the Players Association and saying, no, they need to stand their ground. They cannot let the owners, and they can't set a precedence like this. So it's sort of a split between former players, but current players are more skeptical. That's Jonas Knox. I'm RJ Bell, straight out of Vegas. I agree with everything you're saying. I think the thing that's not being discussed enough is the, the position of inactivity, meaning if nothing happens, what will happen is a 48-game season. It, yes. will, it will take a real strong action. And when I say strong, I mean not good necessarily – for the owners to say, screw it, we're not going to do it, or the players collectively to say, we're not going to do it. Both parties understand no season is so much worse than a 48-game season. 
What they won't understand is how the 48 looks so bad. It shows the disregard of the fans. It's like, oh, yeah, you'll do it when there's a big consequence not to. But if you have a little bit of a loss by doing it, but doing it for the fans, you won't do it. That's all. The takeaway here is that the owners, the players, both of them, individually, collectively, will only do what they have to do for their own self-interest. And if the fans benefit, fine. It's incidental. But it's all about their own self-interest. And it is billionaires and millionaires. And we can debate, well, are you on the billionaire side or the millionaire side? It's a false choice. We're not on either of their sides. We're nothing like them. I'm not anything like them. <laughs> right? National radio show, yeah, it's a different universe. Mil- you know, I mean, again, millionaires, yeah. But we're not talking about millionaires. We're talking about... 20, 30 million a year for the guys that are helping make these decisions. It's not a, you know, in your life you save a million dollars, which is a hell of an accomplishment, but it's not what we're talking about. It's talking about guys that if they lost a check for a million dollars, they might not know it. That's the millionaires that we're talking about here, like Chevy Chase and Caddyshack. (laughs) So I have nothing in common really with either of them, millionaires or billionaires in this case. And I'll tell you this. I know they don't care about me. They don't care about the fans because their actions would show otherwise. It shows in their proposals. And here we get another one today from the players wanting to play 89 games. They know the owners aren't going to agree yeah. to this. I it's mean, just, some of this is PR, but you got in the end, it's what you do. The clock's ticking. Every day that goes by is one less game. And you know what? Neither of them care. And my final word to baseball is... So let's see some hustle. Let's jack it up a little. Now, baseball, we know what they think. They think about themselves. UFC, does Dana White think about himself? Yeah. But Dana White is the fan in a way. And to me, that's the first generation versus the future generations. If you have a business, if it's countries, think about America in 1930, 1920. The assumption was, hey— you might die in the alleyway if you don't have enough money. You get your kidney has a problem, they're going to throw you in the alley. Is that good? Hell no, it's not good. But it was. And there was a culture of, hey, you better go do X or Y, go to school, get a job, or, or you're not going to be able to survive. And that hunger, you know, that, 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 the pre- you know, we're losing these people, just the math of aging. You know, my grandfather passed away last year at 95. You know, grew up during the Depression, stormed the beaches of Normandy, and he saw a lot of things. I, you know, I'm grateful in a way I had, didn't see. You know, a lot of tough stuff. And it hardens people into a certain worldview. And then you got the kids of those people and the kids of the kids, and especially when they're rich. And, the, you know, you see it in every movie. It's the 55-year-old dad who had to crawl his way up, fight, fight, fight. He built a business. Now his son doesn't care. Right. Mm -hmm. Makes sense because the son hasn't gone through those things. I look at Dana White and I think first generation. I think this is a guy who has hundreds of millions now. Let's give him credit. But he's the guy that didn't have hundreds of millions when he was 20. And what he's done in the interim is what earned it for him. And to me, that is the American dream. Dana White, an example of it. And to me... It makes me want to like the UFC more. 
I feel like Dana cares as much. You know, my threshold is: do the participants care more than the fans, or do the fans care more, or is it equal? I'll take equal. But when the fans care more than the participants, the fans are idiots because they don't care. Why should you care so much? That's why people have so much problems when the NBA guys are shaking hands and hugging after games. Mm-hmm. I, you know, whatever you want to say about Isaiah. He cared about losing. He cared about as much as the fans. I know, Jonas, you are a true expert at the UFC. You follow it closely. I'm looking from the outside. Do you think I got Dana White correct? Yeah, no, he's hustled his ass off trying to get fights on, trying to get this figured out. He was told no by the state of California. He continued on. He tried to, you know, put something together on an island, finally got it to go. Then he went to Florida. He had the guts to go out there to be the first real big-time league to do testing, have somebody test positive, and still put on the fight event the next night. He went through all of that. He's taken PR hits, and on top of it, he's got multiple fighters that are completely complaining about their pay during a pandemic and here he is with another fight card this weekend one coming up next month and several after that i think he's i think he's been fantastic through this whole thing i think we forget that the nfl wasn't all that big in the 80s like this is fairly new this billions and billions of dollars and as the participants get further and further away from the fans when it comes to their worldview their experiences i think it's going to be a big challenge for these leagues and I think, uh, like, the UFC doesn't feel like that. Now, in 30 years, when it's Dana, you know, the grandkids of not necessarily Dana White, but that generation, are they going to feel it? Probably not. And you know what? That's the Darwinian element of this thing. Survival of the fittest, natural selection, is leagues will come. And baseball used to be the undisputed king of American sports. No question. And now, it's not. And... I think the macho man will close with this. This is why. Listen, this is why. Comparatively speaking, you are like a grain of sand in the Sahara Desert. Yeah. And I am the entire desert. We're the grain of sand. Baseball. (laughs) It's the desert. At least so they think. (laughs) 